a lot of these late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel, but sometimes crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Rob. And I, being of legal age of my own free will, after having been duly advised and warned of the meaning and consequences of this oath, enroll in the federal service for no less than two years and as much longer as may be required by the needs of the Federation. I'm doing my part. Zach, are you doing your part? I'm just here to get a pregnancy license. <laughs> and we have a very special guest. You might remember him from a manslaughter discussion, but it is Chris. Chris, are you doing your part? I am happy to be here to discuss His Holiness Paul Verhoeven and also the importance of becoming a citizen and earning the right to vote. All right. All right. Well, Chris, I'm glad you said it as best as we could. We are discussing another Paul Verhoeven movie. This is a great way to kick off 2021 for Cinemodities because not only are we starting a new series, but with this movie, Starship Troopers, that we're discussing to kick off this series, we have some tie-ins to some to a director and to another series that Cinemodities did way, way back when. So I want to throw it over to you, Zach. This is, of course, as we mentioned at the end of last month, the series that we are talking about, movies that should have changed the world. Now, I'm not... I'm not saying it should have changed our, like our worlds, like Rob's world, Zach's world, Chris's world, or anybody individually. I think the thesis of this month is we're talking about movies that should have changed the entire world, like crumbled civilizations, changed flows of rivers around the planet. Is that, is that about right, Zach, that these should have had a physical impact on planet Earth as we know it more than they actually did? Yes, Rob, because it's it's funny. There should have been a companion series to this about films that did change the world that like in unlikely ways. And it's kind of a shame that like certain movies kind of had that ability, yet like they haven't made a ton of money, but like their cultural footprint is infinitely larger than other films that did make much more than them. Um, but yes, the whole thesis of this series is films that, that are kind of way ahead of their time and yet never kind of got their due outside of maybe like cult classic fan bases and groups yes yes so i think uh before we can jump into the the starship troopers as a whole which i'm very excited about i think we're all very excited about we of course as chris said are discussing another paul verhoeven movie so i think this is going to be the third we've done on cinemodities i know zach we did total recall way back when uh heather and i did showgirls i don't think we've done any others mm. so this will be our third I, I know that back um, in, you know, Total Recall, Zach and I discussed Verhoeven, uh, Heather and I discussed Verhoeven on Showgirls, but now that we have Chris here, I think we've already got a little bit of his idea from how he introduced Verhoeven, but Chris, what are your thoughts on Paul Verhoeven, and if you think you can, do you have a favorite Paul Verhoeven movie? Okay. Use I'm... two sentences, three if you have to. <laughs> Use okay, as many so sentences he, he, as you want. <laughs> here's, here's, how we, here's, the, here's the best way to sum up uh, Paul Verhoeven for me controversial very interesting just Gold take member. a look at this just just take a look at this <laughs> yes, exactly oh, oh, oh my god <laughs> okay so just just sit back and appreciate this consecutive run of of directorial uh, uh feature films from 1987 to 2000 robocop total recall basic instinct showgirls starship troopers hollow man 
has anyone ever had a sequential run of that much madness like ever like all of that stuff is regardless of what you think about it thoroughly entertaining like i don't i could i could take or leave the stuff before and after that but like seven movies like that in a row is that's a remarkable uh window in time oh yeah yeah for a hell of a decade I, I think um, Zach and I have said to each other, you know, uh, briefly and never really got into it, but that there's only a few directors that really have a run like that that isn't, you know, franchise-based. Like, you know, you think of, like, the Wachowskis and their Matrix movies or Zemeckis with Back to the Future. I think it's like you got Verhoeven and, what, Jimmy C., where they're just like, yeah, none of these movies are related, but they're all, you know, like, have some impact. And that's really and they're all, interesting. And they're, all so, and they're all so clearly Paul Verhoeven movies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I I can't uh I can't disagree with that, Chris. H- have either you uh or Zach have you seen any of his non-American movies like uh, what Flesh and Blood or that was earlier that was before I think that was one ro- before RoboCop and then what like Katja Tipple or L the French movie he did any of those have you guys seen? I saw L like a while ago. Okay, okay. L I was s- good. It's not. It's you read the description for it like you expect like a much more of your Hoveny movie. And then like it's pretty straightforward. It has like it has what's the word? Flavors, but they're very kind of like oh God. They're very much like very what's the word? Baked into the background the way that you wouldn't notice unless you're a big like Verhoven fan. Okay, okay. I haven't seen L. I have seen Flesh and Blood, and that's a that's a very Paul Verhoven movie, I think, because it takes place in medieval times. And it's Paul Verhoeven basically saying, there was no hygiene back in medieval times. Let's make a movie about that. <laughs> so, so Chris, uh, maybe out of that seven or the ones you've seen, do you have a favorite Verhoeven movie? Or do you just, you know, kind of, do you find them incomparable? Because like we were saying, they're almost so separate. I view that those seven, like that is, those seven movies like is Paul Verhoeven in my mind. And okay. I love all of them. Okay. I know Zach and I have disagreed before on, on the best Paul Verhoeven movie. Uh, but I think hey, Chris. Well, what would... is the best? Oh, what, Showgirls. What do you think's the best? Hands showgirls down, Showgirls. Me- show, but every okay, and I think okay, not to take this too far away from Starship Troopers. <laughs> but I'm like, get I don't back think. To. But like, I think Chris won't disagree with me. I forget what I said during the Total Recall discussion, considering that was like three years ago. And all, the episode is probably one of the more important Cinematis episodes because it sets the precedent of if a film makes too much money, it can't be a Cinematity. I've called on um, that precedent. Yes, <laughs> I know it, it's a very dangerous precedent we set early on. Well, I set early on. Um, but like every Paul Verhoeven movie is like so different. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's like Jimmy C almost like it's saying that like, Oh, which is better? Like Rob, please just be quiet for the next 10 seconds. It's like, which is better Terminator two or true lies. And it's like, well, they're so different of like films. You really can't compare them. And I think that's the thing is that like Showgirls is a masterpiece in its own right for a very different reason as to why Total Recall is a masterpiece. Like like even Hollow Man is like like very schlocky in its own way. I haven't seen that movie like in 15 years, but like I don't know. Like I don't know if you could pick a favorite like Verhoeven film unless you're going on like specific genre or very distinct like oh god, jo- I guess genre maybe. 
But at the same day, like I think Verhoeven's almost his own genre in a way because there's really nothing else like him. Yeah, I think I think Starship Troopers like is like in my mind of those seven at least. Like I'm sure like there's somebody listening being like, oh, his early stuff's the best. You guys are so uncultured. But uh, <laughs> but I mean like Starship Troopers kind of has it all in a lot of ways. Like I don't know how you guys feel, but but um, I think it's Verhoeven at his most refined. Yeah, like it's just like there's like there's it has a lot of notes that you see in the other movies, but like there's a lot of moments in this where like you see what you see him satirizing some of the themes in the original book uh, of Starship Troopers. But then also you have like some really like emotional character moments that like I think are kind of genuine and I don't know exactly how that worked on the script side, but it's really a fascinating film. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys when you guys want to do it, but I'd love to sort of briefly uh, outline what's the deal is with the original book compared to this movie. Oh, yes, we will. We will. We are glad to have you, Chris, someone who apparently knows a good bit about the book to be able to discuss that. And I think we're, we're getting closer to honing in on Starship Troopers. But now that we've discussed Verhoeven, I would be remiss. No, I would probably not be able to sleep for the next week if I didn't bring this up. This movie has a connection to the first series we ever did on yes. Cinemodities. I don't know if you know this, Chris. I don't know if you're an OG listener from, you know, a little under three years ago. The first series on Cinemodities ever was the Dean Norris series, where we discussed movies that had Dean Norris in it in some capacity. And that could be in a supporting role, in a bigger role, like in the tie-in with Book of Henry, or Dean Norris just appears for 16 frames at the end of Gremlins 2, and we counted that. <laughs> well, this is a happy I... medium. Dean Norris pretty much plays his uh, standard. Like, he's he basically, the, in terms of delivery, very similar to his Breaking Bad character, right, in this movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <know>? yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask you, Chris, what are your thoughts on Dean Norris? Do you, uh, <laughs> do you have any, any hot takes on Dean Norris throughout the years? I I was I was listening at the time of that series. I was Ooh. perplexed as to why that would be the direction you'd go for the first series, but he he does find his way into some interesting projects, and this is no exception. Chris, that, are you aware of the fact that Dean Norris plays the same character in Gremlins Two: The New Batch as well as in Terminator Two: Judgment Day? Well, that's I mean that's kind of interesting. There's a lot of I think there there's a lot of people who play police officers who show up in multiple films as police officers that's no, like but he's credited do- he's credited he's credited the exact same title in both films <laughs> do you remember what the, do you remember what that title is rob oh uh three I, words oh three words swat team leader yes okay i got it i still got the dean norris in me <laughs> To be fair, Dean Norris started with the Book of Henry, and Rob and I are just like, well, it's like, like we need a connection to like a bunch of other things, and we just found Dean Norris because he plays a, uh, a what a pedophile rapist in that film, police commissioner, by pedophile Co- rapist, police commissioner, yes, <laughs> <laughs> directed by Colin Madman Trevorrow. Um, oh, it's it's and that's what we did. We went through his entire filmography. We realized Dean Norris has been pretty much every single film to the point where we actually had to start like excising films from that series because Rob <laughs> was like, Zach, we can't do like three months straight on this. I'm glad we're getting back to it, though. I think it's been since that first series that we have any Dean Norris in our movies. So I'm glad he's back. 
Exactly. It was a slight refractory period where we had like come back after Claws, Rob. Was there any like any other thing we could go to after Claws where he plays <laughs> what was it? Uncle Uncle Daddy? Uncle Daddy, yes. In his Caligula like sequence like oh by the pools God. where like <laughs> it's the memories are flooding back to me. We have a pool. Non flashback. There's so there's who would have thought that Claws would have musical numbers in it? <laughs> We Cinemonies really did start on a high note. Like we really did set the bar high. It was kind of like, like man, like now I think about Claws and like Book of Hank, and it's like man, like we should have saved some of these gems later when we were further, just more defined as a podcast. Because now I think the audience would be like eating this stuff up. We're like we're just delving into sheer insanity where we just kind of blew our watch straight out of the gate. <laughs> I Remember do the have... Hummer joke, Rob. Yeah, Remember the course. Hummer joke? Of course. Watch the front counter. Okay, with this jog your memory though particularly if a cop came in asking sure would not how you like me now jeff not much better what if we add a hummer who is we i got this watch the front counter hurry up uh, <laughs> this, this is for all the old school listeners of Cinemodities. I'm glad though, Chris, that you the way you said it was. Uh, it was weird that they would talk about Dean Norris at the start. Yes, it was weird. We had no idea what we were doing. Not that we do hey, now, but <laughs> like I like I thought I was an old school listener, but like half of these references are flying over me. So if you're out there and you get all of them, you you deserve some kind of unsubstantial acknowledgement in the facebook group <laughs> right on uh so okay chris i'm very glad that you are a, a huge dean norris fan like we are <laughs> but i guess then that brings us to i'm sure we'll get to dean norris in his uh disciplinary scenes in this starship troopers the year is 1997 it's a what little more than a month before titanic i think it comes out and uh i guess we got to jump into some context as we often do I have to say that um, I saw this movie, I was shown this movie, I should say, when I was very young, um, as as Zach knows, for some reason, my dad was like, oh yeah, they're movies, you can watch whatever, and that's why, you know, when I was like <laughs> eight years old, he showed me Halloween, and it scared the hell out of me. Um, I, th- I would imagine it's around that same time that my dad was watching Starship Troopers. I can't imagine it was on like a like a, a tape or anything. I'm sure it was on TV, but I remember I saw oh, yeah. giant Defi- bugs. This is a definite HBO movie. Yeah, I saw giant bugs. I saw killing. I was very young, and I was like, nope, nope, I do not like this. And I always knew that Starship Troopers was like a, a or I thought I always knew that Starship Troopers was this gory bug war movie, and I stayed away from it, even though I got more into Verhoeven. Like, I loved RoboCop when I got a little older, like early teens, um, and I, I got more into like uh, like Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Zach, and I've talked about our, our childhood, you know, infatuation with Arnold. But eventually it started to seep into me that this was something more than just this bug war movie. And um, if everybody remembers, there was a, a great time where uh, I, I, Chris and I yelled at each other in the Facebook group and Zach was rolling his eyes saying, how do I delete posts? Where Chris basically <laughs> said, you have to watch Starship Troopers. And I did. And this was maybe a little over a year ago, and this was the first time I really sat down and watched it, and I was like, holy shit, this movie's amazing. 
In the last uh, maybe year and a half, I think I've now seen it three times. I, of course, watched it last night for this recording so I could have it fresh in my head. So I have the least amount of context with this. Before this recording, Zach and Chris were saying how, you know, they, they know basically everything about this movie. Uh, they don't need to rewatch it and all that stuff. But I guess I'll throw it over to you next, Zach. Um, w- was this the difference that when you were eight and watched this movie, you were like, yeah, down with fascism? <laughs> No, actually, um, my context with this is really interesting because it kind of was a definition of like a formative point in my life where like I was like I was always the movie person. I think I've told the infamous story about how like when I saw the 18s was the same day I got introduced to Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator. Like it was like one of those days where it was like, wow, like talk about like it was kind of through that woman that was like friends with my mother who introduced me both to Star Wars and Titanic. And so, like, I can still remember, like, when I watched this for the very first time, we were, uh, we were, my mother and I were visiting my grandmother who lived up in the Catskills, and my grandmother had no, like, cable, no internet, it was just basically anything that came over the airwaves. And so, I'm not sure people remember, like, like, Fox, like, the broadcast network would, like, on Sunday nights have, like, a movie of the week, and I'm pretty, I could be wrong about the dates, but I'm pretty sure it was the summer of 2002, my uncle was getting married, and so we were up there, and, like, Fox, like, on a Sunday night was playing Starship Troopers at 8 p.m., and I would imagine, I can only imagine what a TV, like, a broadcast network tv cut of starship troopers looks like <laughs> um like i would love to see that edit like if anybody like if someone has a goosebumps like vision version of starship troopers like ripped from their like tv collection for some reason um i would love to see that but like i remember watching that with my mother and her she's being like completely like detested about like the bug movie like that's how she like anytime i brought up starship troopers she always knew that as the bug movie and that's how i was first introduced to it and I don't know if this was before or afterwards because when we would come to visit, like my grandmother, we would always stay for two weeks. And I'm not sure if it was the weekend before or after this it was also the first time I ever watched The Matrix. So, like, we're talking about like a really big seminal mo- like moment when it came to Zack and movies because I like I saw The Matrix and then I saw Starship Troopers or the other way around. So I always loved Starship Troopers because it was like to a kid. So I was, I think. 10 years old when I saw this I wasn't as young as Rob but like I remember just being like yeah action war bug movie and so like to a 10 year old you couldn't ask for a better movie than this um I kind of don't remember when I started to actually realize the sheer brilliance of this film and that how it's maybe a masterpiece of filmmaking uh I don't know when that happened the next memory I have for this film was I remember being in college as a sophomore really wanting the blu-ray for this um then getting it that summer because it's always like one of those I don't know now but I remember it being like a Blu-ray that like was always like heavily discounted. It was like you could always get it for like five dollars. Even say I was at Walmart earlier this morning and they had the 4K Blu-ray for like fifteen dollars. And it kind of delighted me that like this is a film that's always been accessible. It's not like one of those films that kind of like just disappeared into the ether like other Verhoeven films like Showgirls or um, Hollow Man. It's it's always available up there with like um, RoboCop and that like if you just have any store that sells Blu-rays, you can easily track down a version of this film or a cop not a version, a copy that is. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my entire context with, with Starship Troopers. I can't tell you when I started to realize it was a masterpiece, but it's definitely like I'd say in the last decade, I've been firmly aware of it. It's just this film that's beyond profound for what it gets credit for. Okay, okay, right on. 
And then uh, I guess that brings us to Chris, who uh, and feel free now if you if you want to talk about your history with the movie. But it sounds like you have some earlier history with the with the book. So so feel feel free to enlighten us. We are uncultured. We don't know how to read. To be honest. <laughs> no, well, it's quite. It's I quite definitely all, it's, can't read. It's quite all right. This is a this is an easy an easy short one. So like obviously you know it's written by uh, famed science fiction author author Robert Heinlein and. Um, it's really marks sort of a pivotal point for his career where he was sort of a like what you might call today a young adult author up until this book really and so it came out in uh, it came out in 59 actually and it's the in term if you just looked at if you stripped away the tone and looked at it sort of like in a sort of beat for beat plot sense the movie is remarkably faithful to a book from 59 which you might find surprising but obviously there's a, a lot more layers going on in the movie than than you got in the book but the the core the book was quite controversial at the time and uh not because of sex or violence or anything like that but because it presented this idea that you shouldn't be able to vote unless you've done a term of federal service to some degree and and this was something that it's and and I mean it, it's a really it's much discussed among Heinlein fans about whether that meant literally military service or some sort of federal civil service. It, like Heinlein would go on to elaborate that he it, he didn't he just meant that you should do something for your country more so than literal military service to earn the right to vote. And that idea was was something he wanted to talk about because. Um, in uh, in '58, Eisenhower was considering this unilateral cessation of nuclear weapons testing because the Soviets promised they would do the same thing. And Heinlein was like totally opposed to this, and he wanted to. And it's and it just sort of the pop popular consensus that we better stop doing that because it's the right thing to do. Because he he just thought the Soviets were notoriously untrustworthy. So this book is really sort of like. The the aspect about the the earning the right to vote is a lot to do with if you're gonna if you're gonna be able to make those kind of decisions you should have some context for what you're what you're voting for basically is I think the idea of that and um so when you look at it that way if you look at that sort of the message he was trying to go with with the book we really got a bit of a left turn when it comes to the movie right. <laughs> So, oh yeah. <laughs> so so let me tell you. Let me read you a, a quote of, about and and, and oh and let, let's also stress that this book was thrown together in six weeks because he wanted to make a statement about this this uh, decision. So he wrote this book in six weeks and it sort of marked the end of his young adult writing. And um and now uh, Paul Verhoeven. Here's Paul Verhoeven. Uh, a quote from Paul Verhoeven on the book. I stopped reading after two chapters because it was so boring. It's really quite a bad book. I asked Ed to tell me the story because I couldn't read the thing. It's a very right-wing book. In the movie, we tried and at least think partially succeeded in commenting on that at the same time. It would be like having your cake and eating it too. So it, he did. It, it's sort of like it. I I don't. I wish I knew more about sort of how he got connected to the project. But like, just it, it's it's a remarkable time when you have. A director of a doing a film adaptation of a novel by a famed science fiction author, and his main thought on the matter is, "It's boring. I didn't like it. I had someone summarize the story for me." I'm glad you read that quote. I had that down too, and I always find that so fascinating. I think Zach does as well. I think what we um, discussed it when we did uh, Annihilation. 
that the guy wah, 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 wah. exactly the guy read the book or read part of the book and was like, "This is terrible. I'm just going to take the basic idea and make my own movie about it." So Paul Verhoeven was doing that years before, and I mean, I I think that's what, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I really like that sense in movies being adapted from literary works or from anything else that, you know, I don't really just want a straight retelling. I want these creative forces to put their own twist on it, and that's exactly what Verhoeven did. And tell and one King, tell that to Stephen King, Rob. Well, that, that's why I don't really like and, Stephen uh, King. <laughs> one one last note about about context. Uh, uh, you know, much like uh, much like you, Rob. Like this was something that, like this was maybe one of the first DVDs that was that my parents brought home, and my dad was just like, "This is awesome. We're gonna watch it on my new surround sound system." <laughs> and <laughs> nice. you know, it's been a strong part of my uh, my uh, pop culture uh, worldview ever since. Okay, okay, right on, right on. I guess I should say I, I almost forgot that um, I, I, my other context with Starship Troopers is that it's a, uh, it's a song by the band Yes that I really like. And I know the song is actually influenced by the book, but I don't know in what way. So I guess that brings us to talking about the actual movie. And before we get into it, before I throw it over to see Zach how he wants to break it down with this movie that should have changed the way rivers flow, I have to go over <laughs> to I have to go over to the um, the dark parts of IMDb, which are the trivia oh sections and the parental oh guide sections. I have to get this out of the way. Parental Guy is fun. I don't know about trivia, but Parental Guy can be fun. Sometimes. Well, I, I call them the dark parts because they're both the place where anybody can put whatever they want, and it never has any checks or balances, and it basically just exists for the rest of time. Um, in the in the profanity section of the IMDb Parental Guide, someone wrote some blasphemy. <laughs> I, found that, I found that very funny. Partial blasphemy. Just, just a slight amount that you about. In the sex and nudity section, though. Someone was really, really not into the co-ed shower scene. And they wrote, Men and women are seen clustered in the showering room as they take a shower. Women in background are fully naked, and they scrub their big breasts and vaginal mound with soap. This scene lasts nearly a minute. I, I don't think we see anything below the waist, unless it's a butt shot, right? We don't see any vaginal mound scrubbing. They're, they're kind of making it sound a lot better than it was. Yeah! <laughs> vaginal mound, I mean, one of my favorite combinations of any two words in the English language now. Somebody <laughs> saw this and got turned on and then, you know, flogged themselves well, and went, I yeah, need exactly. to tell the rest it of the, the world. It was the same guy who wrote about the blasphemy, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I have experienced sin and IMDb must know about it. <laughs> I found that crazy. Of course, in the in the sex and nudity section, there's other things that just say, like, there is naked people in a shower, like men and women together, like very matter-of-factly, as you should explain that scene because it is not played for a sexiness at all. But this this person just went all out on it. And and then in the trivia, th there's a lot of trivia for this movie. It's redundant because the trivia sections for popular movies or, you know, cult classics, whatever you want to call this, always are. But somebody wrote, which I was laughing hysterically when I found this, 
and I don't know if it's true. I didn't do any research into this to see if I could find an interview to back it up or anything like that because I just loved that it was just stated so bluntly. Somebody wrote, Every kissing scene with Casper Van Dien and Denise Richards required a minimum of five takes because they couldn't fit their ridiculously oversized jaws together. <laughs> that has to be a joke. Like, I, I did not find this anywhere else. That has to be a joke that someone was like, yeah, I'm just going to goof on, on people with big chins. <laughs> that sounds like something left over from, from like early 2000s IMDb, like I, when they used to have like forums and stuff. Like, I'm surprised that wouldn't be like tidied up by now. That should, movie should have a lot of traffic on the site. Oh, yeah. I, I think there was that's, something like two. Oh, yeah. I loved that one. That's There's all, like that's 250 genuine. things. Oh, yeah. IMDb is a lawless wasteland over there. <laughs> it's, it's, you know what's getting? They tried to clean up a couple of years ago when they got rid of the message boards, like Chris was saying. And yet, still, I love how those little gems like that just kind of sneak through. <laughs> all right. So, so I guess, um, you know, Zach, how do we want to break this down? Uh, do we need to talk about uh, plot at all? How, what were you oh, thinking? Oh, God. How, okay. Um, oh, God. The thing about this movie is, like, I would imagine anybody listening to this podcast has seen it. It's like, I, I don't even know how you would break this down in, like, the most condensed way possible. Um, it's a movie about a bunch of cardboard cutouts, from, intentional cardboard cutouts, yes. that join the military for various reasons, and they go to fight bugs, and... Everybody kind of loses their soul in the process because that's the point. And and that's kind of it. Like I would imagine we're going to probably kind of like unfurl the plot of the movie through just discussing different sequences. But that's kind of it. Like, oh, God. Like, again, there's there's the more and more I think about this movie, there's so many things in this that it's a shame that like audiences in 1997 didn't appreciate. Like, like one of those sequences that I didn't really get into the last couple of years was that when Casper Van Dien is like being flogged, he's being done so by a black man. And yep. I'm like, how did nobody in 1997 not like pick up on this? It's be like, wow, this is like, yeah, not, I'm going to use this word a lot in this discussion, but profound. It's like, like these, this is the type of movie we wish they would continue to make. And yet they made this movie with a ridiculously high budget, a much higher budget than they should have ever given a film like this. And I, and I don't want to get too philosophical here, too, like, I guess, abstract when it comes to Verhoeven's career. But, like, between, like, what? There was, what, a three-way punch that kind of killed his career in Hollywood, and it began with Showgirls, and it ended with Hollow Man? Okay, okay, interesting. But, but like, that's the thing, though. Like, this is the type of movie that, like, I know why I originally was pitching this series to Rob, but I, I kind of wanted to do Mad Max Fury Road in here instead, or at some point in this series, and Rob kind of talked me out of it. But I feel like this is one of those movies that understands, like, sarcasm, cynicism, all these things that, like, we claim to want now, and yet this film still is, like, I don't know, Chris, maybe you can tell me, but, like, there's this thing that I've mentioned a few times on this podcast where, like, something like Evil Dead 2, I feel has, like, firmly transcended beyond cult classic to mainstream classic, and I feel like Starship Troopers is by, like, still, like, an unseen gem. Like, do either one of you disagree with that, or am I just, like, looking at this under the wrong lens? I think that it's, it's, uh, it's probably a little more, um, it's probably a little more uh, pervasive in the pop culture landscape than you're uh, giving it credit for these days. I don't know about um, U.S. Netflix, but uh, it's on the Canadian Netflix right now. And, you know, it's Evil Dead 2 even is a little harder to find most of the time. But, uh, but you know, it, I, I think 
this is sort of like, and maybe it's, um, and as much as you hate al- aliens, Rob, there's something <laughs> going on with like the iconography of this movie that whether like they take some stuff from aliens and then like, and then like the stylistic child of aliens and starship troopers is kind of like the halo video games for me. And I feel like you, they all sort of like, it sort of like flows in that direction. And like, I, I don't know about you guys. I'm a huge hand, a fan of the halo series. And like, I think there's a ton of stuff that starship troopers informed there. And I, and, and just, and, and, and I think that er, like everyone, I, a lot of people I know have are familiar with it. And they, they like, if you, they know there's that extra layer to it, that is like, that like may not have been appreciated at the time, but that might just be the, the people I talk to. Right. It's sort of, there's probably just a lot more, as we like to call filthy casuals out there who sort of watch it and see the, the scenes where the, the advertisements for the military, where the children are like grabbing all the ammo and stuff and see that and just roll their eyes and think it's a trash movie. And it just goes right over their head. I, maybe there's just too many of those people out there. I think that's, that's what I've found. And, you know, I mean, uh, well, I got, you know, I got, uh, I got Zach, I got Chris, I got the podcast community, but the other people I talk to are like Ben and Justin, and they have no idea what Starship Troopers is. Not, they don't even know, like, that it's a bug fight movie, bug war movie, beyond any layer than that, if they even do know that. Um, but that's the thing that I've always been intrigued by. After I finally saw this movie, you know, it's not just that, oh, we gotta go fight the bugs. Like, there is so much more going on. And when I was doing my research for this episode, and as Zach mentioned, you know, this got basically derided when it came out. It seemed like people were saying that, oh, it's so pro-violence and pro-war. And I'm like, did you see the movie? It starts with Michael Ironside saying that voting is an exercise in force and that and violence has solved more problems than any other measure. And I'm like, I'm like, how how do you think this is pro-anything? I think it's more profound and... And I, I don't really see how people got that. Of course, it was a different time. I didn't see it in 1997. But that's the thing that baffles me. I think what you were getting at, Chris, that there's so many people who take this at a surface level when it should be thought about much, much more. I mean, it's just it. It's I almost don't believe that's possible when you have and I one of your I, what we've already talked about. It, it seems like three times, but one of your uh, favorite scenes is when the our trio of leads go up to the recruitment desk and have an exchange oh. with someone. I don't know if you want to get into that. I won't, that is I won't steal the it from you. Funniest. That is one of the funniest scenes in this movie. That is one of the funniest like jokes in cinematic history, where they're like, "What are you doing? Oh, military intelligence. I'm going to be a pilot. What about you, son? Mobile infantry. Ah." good man that mobile infantry made me the man i am today and the dude has a robotic arm and no legs <laughs> now it would be one thing it would be one thing if if it was just your average sort of medium close up and we're focusing on the guy's eyes but no the camera it's an insert shot of his robot arm yep it's not and and if that goes over your head like wh- what are we even talking about right now yeah yeah if you if you don't get that that is like played for uh, I've played for somewhat of like a maybe a dry laugh, like a Verhoeven laugh. I, I don't know if we can coin that phrase. It's not really like dry wit. It's it's satire. It's it's this it's is early in the movie. Yeah. yeah, and I I think you know I always I love satire. I, that's one of my favorite you know kind of forms of of anything. And I think one of the best qualities of a satire is that it has to seem realistic. Like you have to get people who think it's true. And this movie walks that line so finely that I think that the people who say, oh, man, this movie is pro-Nazis, pro-fascism, pro-violence, 
it's like it. It's that's that's a benefit to the movie. I have to say, I don't. I think that it's weird. I could never watch this movie and go, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna join the military." You know, this movie glorifies it. But you know, it's, you need to have it, a you need to have believability. It's like the Onion. You need people who retweet the Onion and be like, "Can you believe this?" For it to be good satire. <laughs> well, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm giving the world of the 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 world that I do uh, that I do at romanticized of ni- 1997 when this film was released. Maybe I'm giving those people too much credit. But perhaps the author's original intention of implying that you should do some federal service to earn your right to vote of the 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 the, the, the something that's present in the novel where that is treated much more seriously in the novel like maybe that was sort of maybe people had a cultural reference point of that's what that book is about and this movie is a if, if you just look at it on paper it's a somewhat faithful retelling of that story maybe that was impacting the way people interpreted it at the time or okay. maybe they didn't watch it but knew what that book was about do you know if this is one of uh heinlein's more popular novels because i know this was the book right before stranger in a strange land which has to be his most well-known work do you yeah, know if this it, one mean, was big it's it's number one or number two in terms of like filthy casuals knowing the name of it okay <laughs> okay right on <laughs> Zach, what do you what do you think about this satire versus belief idea? Well, that's that's kind of the thing that's interesting about this is that like I don't know if how much oh god like that's the thing like you could tell all this was baked into the pie with this movie, but getting back to like Chris's point about audiences in 1997 mm-hmm. is like I looked up Roger Ebert's review from the time and he only gave this film a two out of four, which means. Ebert was kind of, for the most part, lukewarm on it. He didn't hate it, but at the end of the day, he really thought there was really no merit to ever watching it. Um, and you see things, like, in his review, he's like, discussing the science of Starship Troopers is beside the point. Verhoeven is facing in the other direction. He wants to depict the world of the future as it might have been visualized in the mind of a kid reading Heinlein in 1956. He faithfully represents Heinlein's militarism, his big brother state, in a value system in which the highest good is to kill a friend before the bugs can eat him. The underlying ideas are the most interesting aspect of the film. What's lacking is exhilaration and sheer entertainment. Unlike the Star Wars movies, which embraced a joyous vision and great comic invention, Starship Troopers doesn't resonate. It's one-dimensional. We smile at the satirical size, but where's the warmth of human nature, the spark of genius or rebellion? If Star Wars is humanistic, Star Troop- uh, yeah, Starship Troopers is totalitarian. And I'm like, yeah, and that's the point. It kind of goes back to the – it's like the Stanley Kubrick quote where it's like, well, the people who critiqued uh, Jack Nicholson's performance in The Shining, it's like, well, just because you didn't like it doesn't mean it wasn't my intent. And that's the thing is that like that's the point of all this. Just because you couldn't realize it doesn't make it an inferior film. I also take issue with the the Ebert – that Ebert quote you read, the part saying, you know, where is the the warmth of humanity – I don't think at any point in this movie we're supposed to be rooting for the humans, and that's exemplified by the final scene when Neil Patrick Harris says, it's afraid, and everybody cheers and fires their guns. We should be fully against the humans at the end of the movie. That's, and, but, like, that's the thing, though, is that, like, Johnny Rico is our protagonist, and we see his slow descent yeah, into yeah. just being consumed by the machine. He goes from this kid who has, what? Uh, choice the fact that he wants to choose between okay like he he wants his girl he wants to be with his girlfriend 
He sits there like he has parents that obviously he has a very lavish, rich lifestyle. He's going to go to Harvard, but he chooses military service because he wants to pursue a very humanistic thing. Like he wants to pursue romance. And then Carmen, very early on in the film, is consumed by this. And so he's disillusioned to the point where like he's kind of what half heartedly going through this until what they blow up or they destroy Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. And then it's this bloodlust. That continues him for most of the like, kind of like what perpetuates like his what for momentum for all of his choices. And then by the end of the film, he is very much a cog in the machine. There is no more human nature to, to his character. Yeah, he becomes part thing, of the propaganda. You... Yeah, exactly. Like literally. And then it's the whole I think about his final scene in the movie is what you want to live forever. And that's the thing. He is part of the machine now. He goes from the very beginning of the film being a student of Michael Ironside's, pushing against his beliefs and what he's trying to, what, indoctrinate the students with to, like you said, he is part of the indoctrination now. And that's and that's what it is. And, like, to, to not – I get that. Like, that's not something you can pick up on your first viewing of this. And to get to um, uh, Ebert's thing about, like, oh, like, all you have in this film – is like bombastic nature of violence and murdering bugs. And yes, that is the the hook. That is the selling point of the film. Like any good satire, that you need a hook and an angle. Satire by itself is not a good marketing angle. Sure, sure. And you you need that bombast to hook the normies mm -hmm. in. And then once they watch it, you hope that at least one person's like, oh, I get it now. And it's a shame that how someone like Roger Ebert, who's considered probably up there with like, God, maybe only second to Pauline Kale when it comes to just film criticism in general, was not able to get that at, at the time. And I don't know if, if you'd have to go back and look at some of Ebert's other books from the 2000s to see if, if he ever reevaluated this film. Um, but it's a shame that someone even like him could not appreciate, could not kind of see the forest of the trees when it came to Starship Troopers. Well, I, I don't know. I like if, if you're saying Ebert gave it, gave it a two out of four, like to me, that sounds like he pretty much loved it. But like, trust me, there are movies that Ebert liked. like it, it, Ebert was always weird, like like back when he still had his like when he didn't like lose his ability to talk. Um, Ebert was always an anomaly because like he appreciates certain things. Bro, probably can tell you the story about like his like hatred of David Lynch. Oh yeah, and how like he went like he went like God. He was on the soapbox to end all soapboxes when it came to like Blue Velvet and Isabella Rossellini and her treatment in the film. Look what they um, made then, her like, do. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then like you go to like Mulholland Drive and he loved he thought Mulholland Drive was like something sort of a masterpiece. I mean, um, it's so surprising when you think about um, his own and his own involvement in film. If you like, you know, there's a lot Valley of, of the dolls, just just stuff that features. I mean, and I, and I there's no I'm not passing on any judgment on that stuff whatsoever. I don't think that like anybody should tell people what to write and what not to write but you know he's, there's a lot of movies with graphic violence and rape scenes that ebert was involved with over the years like in, before he became a well-renowned film critic and it's just interesting to see these i mean it's 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 hard to judge somebody like it's one of those things people like to do now it's like oh look what you said in the 70s like let's dig that up now but like you know obviously like back before twitter and all that you were allowed to like grow and progress and change as a human and like they sort of accepted the current version of you as who you were which is obviously not something that happens anymore and i would it would, i would be ashamed i would hate to see roger ebert in his sort of final years 
right now rather than when that took place. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, somebody would have some bullshit to say to him. That would, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think, I think that he, I think he's more than smart enough to understand that, that having a warm, wholesome human character connection is not the point of this movie. I, I like, it's so hard to understand, but like, maybe he's just knows who his film criticism audience is and he's trying to direct the average family as to what they should watch i don't know sure but that's the thing though it's like i think it's like any good satire like it takes time for it to be appreciated yes. I, I don't think i don't think anything just kind of comes like anything that's worth watching it's kind of like like we talk about with a lot of movies like again not to go back to kubrick but like there's a reason why when most of his films were released they were initially de- like i don't want to say divisive but like most people were kind of like what like, what are we supposed to make of this? And then, like, it took 20 or 30 years later for people to be like, oh, 2001 is the greatest science fiction film that will ever be made. And it just takes time for these things to gel. And that, that also gets, like, back to my point about Evil Dead 2. And I know, Chris, obviously, there's a little bit of, like, a cultural divide between the two of us, even though there's, like, what, maybe only a couple hundred miles to, like, between <laughs> us. It's the thing of, like, it's just interesting that, like, Starship Troopers, even though it's available at Walmart right now in New York State, I still feel that, like, most most people have not seen this movie like it's the idea that like like oh god like i think rob and i were talking about it it's like most people are aware of like evil dead 2 and bruce campbell like like squatting up and down to like the deer head laughing at him like on halloween night like there's a driving by me rob knows where it is on overlook and like they were playing evil dead 2 on halloween night I don't see them, like, especially now with everything with COVID, like, a lot of, like, older movies are getting a second life on the big screen, quote-unquote, because of this. But, like, I can't see theaters putting Starship Troopers back into theaters, whereas I could very easily see Evil Dead 2 being put back into theaters. Like, there's that same thing where I still don't think people have firmly, like, outside of film criticism circles, have truly appreciate this film for the masterpiece that it is like it, it baffles me that like two years later the matrix becomes this like larger than life cultural phenomena yet starship troopers for the most part was ignored in 1997 that's that's interesting yeah and starship troopers is not without its uh its own impressive technical achievements as well you know like i mean like, like just to briefly touch on the effects like for 1997, some of these CGI bugs look fantastic, and it has held up really well. Like especially there's a there's a scene where a bunch of the the standard sort of warrior bugs attack this fort out in the desert, and like you just see this field of them. And the and the animation, like I was really expecting to be laughing at it when I watched this movie the last time, but like it's held up really well. And I mean, of course, you have this thing where the close-ups are practical effects. But, like, some of the wide CGI shots where you see hundreds of bugs still look really good. But, like, that's the thing about this movie, though, that's fascinating. It's like, it's made in, like, 95, 96. And it was that time period where, like, it's probably the last great, what, practical effects, like, special effects movie. Because you have Jurassic Park that came out a few years earlier. And yet you still didn't have practical effects being phased out. So it's really like I, I cannot think of a better film that blends practical and special effects as well as this film has. Because like you said, it's, we're what, 23, 24 years later? And I would say this film – I cannot think of another film from the 1990s that the special effects hold up as well. Like you look at the – like this is bring it back also to The Matrix. Like you look at The Matrix, like there's moments in that where it doesn't hold up. 
Yet you look well, at this, and there's really nothing. That I, there's not. It's probably a maybe a handful of moments here or there, but like as a whole, I don't think there's a single special effect in this film that doesn't hold up by today's standards. I mean, the ben- the benefit the obviously the the main benefit the original um, Matrix has is they developed a remarkable practical shooting technique for bullet time that they later pretty much just animated in the two sequels. And I think that for that reason, the first one it's like with the, it's like with the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, like some of the scenes where it's a fully animated person just are laughable by today's standards. And you have that big time in the matrix reloaded, but like the first movie kind of skirted that by like, like though you've we've all seen the behind the scenes photos of those camera rigs with like a hundred cameras in a circle that they set up for the first Matrix movie and like that because they they like can you imagine just the idea of literally setting up a physical preposterous camera rig to pull off something like that is like so beyond anything that any production does anymore like that's yeah. like such a like Rube Goldberg ludicrous concept to do something like that whereas now it's like we'll make a volume and we'll just do whatever we want all the time. And, uh, but like, like when's the last example of something like that, that's probably it. Right. And then like, so I think that one holds up pretty good. And I think that's what everyone remembers from that movie. If you're a a basic person, who's not looking at it on an ideological level, you remember the bullet time scenes and that's what everything parodied for like eight years straight. Mm -hmm. But, but like, but that's the thing too. Again, like, not to sit there bring us back to like '90s cinema is at large, but like, it's weird to think about that. Like, you have like kind of all these like science fiction gems of the '90s, like Total Recall, Starship Troopers, The Matrix. Like, there's probably a couple other ones that like I, I really don't want to include Jurassic Park because that's really not science fiction. It's more action adventure. But you have kind of all these films, and I'm just trying to figure out why is it that like The Matrix would resonate so much more with mass audiences over Starship Troopers, and you're only talking about like what 18 months between their releases? Well, I think like, that it's uh, it's like if you like, I think the 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 uh, the short answer is that exactly what Roger Ebert was touching on. The the general audience wants to believe that they're that the film is being taken seriously and that they can actually try and empathize with the characters and like starship troopers doesn't really want you to do that the matrix does i i also think that yeah i I agree with that chris i also think that you know we can't there's a there's a disjointedness between the the audience and our main characters in starship troopers because in starship troopers it's like oh they're soldiers and you know, I don't think you really see Starship Troopers and you'd be like, yeah, I want to be a soldier. You watch The Matrix and you want to be like, and, and you say, oh, that's badass. I want to be Keanu Reeves with the sunglasses, with the with the long jacket and flipping around and stuff like that. It's almost like it's something we hadn't seen before where we've seen soldiers in, in army suits with guns before. Well, and also Keanu Reeves is like is like the audience's window into the story. Like he's like a, and the every man who gets pulled into the story. Yeah. Right. And like starship troopers, like who is, who relates to Johnny Rico, like of the audience? Like, I don't know, like raise some his hand, raises, raises hand. <laughs> well, and but you know, I, I don't love like I think, that's I don't thing think too. it's we got... cynical. I don't think it's young, completely... Like, young, straight, white men identify with Johnny Rico because Denise Richards is gorgeous. <laughs> that That's the audience surrogate. They all want to date Denise Richards. <laughs> and I also contend that Michael Ironside's character is kind of a good guy. Like, I don't think he's, like, actually 
thoroughly trying to indoctrinate this the students. But I think, but like, okay, going like, but yes, that's the thing that's interesting about this movie is that there's so many layers. You could pretty much take every scene of this movie and discuss it on a philosophical level, which I, I, I really can't think of another film, maybe other than again, 2001, if we're staying within like this science fiction, like pantheon, because like take the sequence when we're first introduced to Michael Ironside, like in the classroom. And it's like, you have the one girl raise her hand, like when Michael Ironside's like going through his entire thing about like, Oh, like, like what's he say? Like naked brute, like force has solved all like conflicts in their most efficient way possible. Yep. And then you have like the one girl raise her hand. She's like, my mother said violence doesn't solve anything. And he's like, what would the town like founders or the town fathers of Hiroshima say about that? And Denise Richards like raises her hand. She's like, they wouldn't say anything. They're dead. Yep. And I'm like, oh my God, it's great. Like it's like, Rob, please insert that clip here. Let's sum up. This year we explored the failure of democracy. Well, the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans, how they took control and imposed the stability that has lasted for generations since. You know these facts, but have I taught you anything of value this year? Hmm? You, why are only citizens allowed to vote? It's a reward. What the Federation gives you for doing federal service. No. No. Something given has no value. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Uh, my mother always said violence never solves anything. Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. You. They probably wouldn't say anything. Hiroshima was destroyed. Correct. Naked force has resolved more issues throughout history than any other factor. The contrary opinion, that violence never solves anything, is wishful thinking at its worst. People who forget that always pay. <laughs> Rico, what's the moral difference, if any, between a civilian and a citizen? A citizen accepts personal responsibility for the safety of the body politic, defending it with his life. A civilian does not. The exact words of the text. But do you understand it? Do you believe it? I don't know. Of course you don't. I doubt anyone here would recognize civic virtue if it reached up and bit you in the ass. Um... And, and I, like, I love that's... every every time we get a classroom scene, whether it be Michael Ironside or the uh, the wonderful blind Rue McClanahan in this movie. Oh, they're just oh. discussing something that is so like over the top, and you know, I, even Rue McClanahan's to get to that. She's ex she's the biology teacher, or bug anatomy teacher, whatever it is, and she's giving the speech about like how the bugs, you know, are like we're gonna they they can colonize planets and spread themselves by sending their spores into space. And it's like everything she's saying you can attribute to humans as well. Like, what do you think humans are doing? They're sending all their, their children out to space to kill the bugs and colonize. Well, and she's I really... love all that stuff. Ugh. Oh, come on. It's just the bugs. You better put your goggles just on. Just the bugs. <laughs> we humans like to think we are nature's finest achievement. I'm afraid it just isn't true. This archaic sand beetle is superior in many ways. It reproduces in vast numbers. Has no ego, has no fear, doesn't know about death, and so is the perfect selfless member of society. But humans have created art, mathematics, and interstellar travel. 
true. But before you let that go to your head, take the example of the arachnids, a highly evolved insect society. By human standards, they are relatively stupid. But their evolution stretches over millions of years. And now, Here, take this. they can colonize planets by hurling their spore into space. I mean, she's she's like it's it, there's more there's more real science in her brief explanation than this movie gets credit for. She's really just explaining like why like evolution can make a life form extremely successful, even if they're not technologically advanced. Right. It's like yeah. why are trees and birds and flies so pervasive? Right. It's pretty much the same thing. It's like survival is the the one key to success and that's everything else sort of follows from that. Right. And, but, uh, but Michael Ironside, like he, he, like they hit the Johnny's dad sort of makes the throws out that, Oh, what's this guy doing setting up a recruiting center in the, in the school that should be illegal. But you know, when, when Rico answers like what it means to be a citizen and sort of, he, he, I think what Ironside says is that you gave the the textbook definition of what it means to be a citizen, but do you understand what that yeah. means? And that's sort of the end of that scene. And then you know, he, there's a he Rico catches up with a, a rat, Mr. Ratchek later in the, in the movie at this uh, the graduation dance, I think it is, and um, he's sort of like he goes up to him and he's like, you know, I'm really thinking about enlisting, and it's like he's almost seeking this guy's approval as like he just looks up to this guy and he seems like he knows what he's talking about and he asks him his advice whether you should sign up or not and he and he tells him he, he tells uh, rico that figuring things out for yourselves is the only freedom we really have and he's like i'm not gonna i don't want to say anything to you about that and so he's not like i don't i think it's he's probably the most enlightened character in the movie and he's not really like pushing pushing it as hard as I like when you when you have Johnny's dad accusing him of turning it into a recruiting center, that's how you know that's not what's happening. But sure. I think that's but I think that's the thing though about Michael Ironside's character is that like he's so what's the word deep in the machine that he doesn't know which way. So I think he's a school teacher. In the moment things flare up, he's right back in the thick of it. Like it's kind of like the discussion of like Batman versus Bruce Wayne. It's like who is the alter ego. And usually the consensus is Batman's the person and Bruce Wayne's the alter ego. And I think that's the same can be said for Michael Ironside's characters. Like he's a school teacher and the moment like things flare up, same with what also happens with Johnny Rico, they immediately go right back into the thick of it. And I right, think you can look at it as yeah. I don't think Michael Ironside's character is is purposefully doing indoctrination. It's just that he's a cog in the machine. Like, does he have his moments where his humanity kind of peeks out, like where he tells Johnny, like, oh, like the like the free uh, freedom of choice is really the only freedom that we have at the end of the day. And like, no, I think it does peak out. But for the most part, everybody in this film is a cog in the machine, except for people like johnny's parents because like it's interesting that like we're really not introduced to anybody else's parents like we never see denise richards's parents we never see really any other adult characters except, except for the awesome part where um uh oh what's come on i want to reference that doctor show that neil patrick harris does come on what's doogie the guy's name? Doogie, so when doogie hauser psychically forces his ferret to go attack his mom that's the one other parent we hear but that's you all hear, you don't even, but you don't but you don't even see them though like think about it, it could be very easily they could have shot a sequence of the ferret like going up his mother's leg and they chose not to it was like, funnier think, that way well it, it is funnier too but like i think there's a reason why i think there's a reason why we really are only hu- like adult characters 
are the ones that we see because it's purposely being that way. Like you have the like think about it. Michael Ironside basically becomes the father surrogate for Johnny Rico. And that's the thing is that like in the like in the oh god in totalitarianism the state is the father figure not the parents the state is the one that basically is the teat from which everybody sucks from and that's the thing too that I think is fascinating that this film does not get credit for is that you do have like these instances where we do get to see the really big machinations of the government and it's really not to the very end that we get to see Johnny's what only real human interaction with them. And that's with Neil Patrick Harris's character, Mm -hmm. because think about like Neil Patrick Harris's character goes from being like the goofy fun sidekick or no, I'm sorry. I guess maybe sidekick. I don't know. He's kind of like the most jovial character in the first, what 20, 30 minutes of the film. He's absent for what three quarters of it. And he shows up by the end and he's really the only character that we see that's been genuinely beat down psychologically by the events of the film. And we don't even see his character arc. It's more just alluded to in his performance in the like what last 20 minutes of the film. Oh yeah. I I love that whole thing that he, you know, he gets enlisted for what military intelligence and they're like, wow, that's high up, you know, and then what we see him in a propaganda film and then he's basically like the head of the whole operation at the end. I really enjoyed that. We didn't see that arc. He's the head of the SS like that. Yeah, is essentially yeah. what his thing is, is that like he's wearing the oh, God, I, I forget where I read this, but like apparently on set, they call his They call his character. Uh, Doogie Himmler. Do- yeah, I read that Doogie Himmler. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what he is. And like, you got to give Neil Pat. It's kind of a shame that Neil Patrick Harris is going back to being like schlocky dancing man. But like, talk about another actor that like knows how to do dramatic acting. And I don't know what Rob's opinion on this is, but he's like one of the better parts of Gone Girl with David Fincher. Like that's because I, I think his dramatic roles are kind of few and far between. Like How I Met Your Mother kind of ruined uh, Neil Patrick Harris for dramatic roles, mm-hmm. um, at least for me. But but no, like he is probably one of the better like characters in this. Like he's like definitely one of those things because I know in 97 I wouldn't have known what – I didn't know who Neil Patrick Harris was. Um, and that's the thing. I But like – you look at all the other characters in this film, the non-adult characters. You're what? Uh, Johnny Rico, Denise Richards, uh, what's his name? Xander Cage. Um, I, I know I'm making that last part up. But like that <laughs> – Xander oh, Cage what, is the triple X dude, right? I, I, I know. What's his last name? He hangs he, out he with Tony actually... Hawk, makes videos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I no, don't know. Is Patrick, last name? Patrick Muldoon. Like, I don't know his character name. <laughs> Oh, God, he has a really great, like, fake name in this. Oh, God, Xander – oh, God, what's his last name? Somebody – Rob, pull up IMDb real quick. Barcolo. Is that his last name Lieutenant Xander Barcolo, B-A-R-C-A-L-O-W. Okay. <laughs> Barcolo. It's, it's, it's an equally goofy last name. Um, <laughs> but, um, but no, but, like, I think there is that level of of all these characters that you really – like like – Oh God, like when it comes to the younger ones that like really Neil Patrick Harris is the only one that feels like he's been influenced by the violence because all the other characters, I would say, are almost practically desensitized to it. Sure, sure. I could I could see that. And I think, you know, it kind of we see with Neil Patrick Harris uh, that I I think it, it hits harder that we don't see his arc because then when he has that transition into being, you know, so steeped in the military intelligence and this war that they're having. Um, it, it just it's like he's another one of the teachers, like a Michael Ironside or Rue McClanahan or Clancy Brown, like he's another cog in that machine. And we just can accept that because the movie set it up so perfectly. Yes. 
All right. So what else do we want to talk about from this film? Because like, I feel like I've done a lot of just more philosophical musings, but I imagine there's certain scenes we want to delve into. Uh, on the topic of, um, you know, like I think we were just saying, and you mentioned earlier, Zach, that we kind of have this um, this wooden acting of our, you know, say, Casper uh, Van Dien, uh, Denise Richards, uh, Jake Busey, I guess, would fall into that category, Patrick Muldoon. I love the fact that all of our our cogs in the machine, as I guess we're calling them, like our Ironside and our Clancy Brown, they I don't see that as wooden acting. I see that as you know representing exactly what the military industrial complex of this movie is, and I like that kind of you know reflection or or juxtaposition between our younger our, our characters and our older characters. Um, and I think that's another thing that people really didn't get back in the day in 97, where they're like, oh, man, some of this acting is so bad. Like, why does it start like Beverly Hills 90210? But once again, that's the point, I think. Well, that's the thing. Like, you read the stories that, like, apparently Paul Verhoeven won, like, 15-year-olds. Yes. And I would, <laughs> I would absolutely love to see that. Like I would like I want that so badly. Like if you could go around and just like cast a bunch of teenage actors, like I get that would be almost impossible just because of trying to find good teenage actors would be like next to impossible to find. But like I think that's one of those instances where I'd be like, oh, you could have made this movie just a little bit better, just a little bit better. Because like if you actually, because I know like what Casper Van Diem was like what twenty eight, twenty nine when he was making this. Yeah, I think most of them um, are like mid to late twenties. Yeah. Yeah. But like I, I, I think that would just sold it even better if you got teenage actors, or at least teenage actors. I'm sorry, like actors in their early twenties that looked like they were teenagers. Yeah, we we almost. I mean, he gets at that a little bit with the um, what when the when Casper Van Dien takes over the Roughnecks and the, the all the young people get sent to him, and he's like, "Who's all the kids?" I don't know how old those any of those actors actually are, but they definitely look significantly younger than anybody else in the cast. Yeah, but that's easy. That's just extra. Sure, like that's, sure. Like that's that's an easy enough one to do. Yeah, and it's you know, I, but, and it makes sense because it's the war. They need everybody they can get. Like Jake Busey says, they're fresh out of boot. You know all that stuff. I do want to like point out that like any time I've ever like watched this, I've and I've watched this with a, a couple groups of people for the first time, and it's something they always comment on. It's like, who are all these? 30 somethings playing teenagers like it's like it's almost like a joke about the movie in a way like you just don't believe it especially with casper van dean like he and i mean in uh with mr xander cage doesn't look like a spring chicken either you know that guy looks <laughs> like he's probably 42 years old or something i don't know it doesn't really work but uh i mean but, but i think I, but i think that's part of the maybe unintentional brilliance too is like you cast air like actors that look like like glam models you know they're older and it creates like this weird sort of just like surrealistic nature to the high school like where this almost could be like like it's like where does the line of the propaganda like blend and blur into like the the narrative of the film versus the little vignettes mm-hmm. and i think that's where the, i think that's the reason why this film works so well it's like i know like now if you're says like when he does like q a's regarding this film it's like oh we deliberately casted actors that like didn't act so well but looked like cardboard cutouts and 90210 actors because like that's the, the thing we were going for like i don't think so because, I, like, I, everybody, yeah wouldn't you love to believe that but i just don't <laughs> i don't but i think that's maybe again it's one of those times where like we backed into brilliance by accident or like by casting these actors because it's like like neil patrick harris we've learned can act like we've learned denise richards cannot act and Casper Van Dien's kind of like what, like a glorified TV actor right now, or he was. I don't know what he's been up to lately. Well, you know, but I like, mean, who could forget about the classic direct-to-video Starship Troopers three? <laughs> was it Marauders of the Federation? No, no, second one's Heroes of the Federation. 
Is the third one just Marauders? Uh, it, it, the whole direct-to-video s- sequels of Starship Troopers with a animated one that is soon to be released, if not already, is all just uh, okay. a big pile well, of sadness. I don't know. It's just <laughs> like, why? How? Why? How? Why? How? I don't know. Oh, my God. I would love to make a new Starship Troopers. and you can, I, I, I want to take the cast of Sony Spider-Man series and make a Starship Troopers movie with them. Like, I would love to do that. Like, please, like Tom Holland, Johnny Rico, Zendaya. I guess she'd be dizzy. I don't know who would play Denise Richards. I, I just give it to me. Just Sydney give Sweeney. it to me. You Denise know, Sweeney could be Denise. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> I just don't think they could do it. Like, you, you, I have so little faith in the in the machine these days. You know, I think that, that if they tried now, 1997 Starship Troopers, the, the social commentary would actually look subtle in comparison to what they would do now it'd be so heavy-handed because like, but, like now it would people be the, know how dumb the audience is but like that's I, I think if they made this today it would be the exact opposite of that like i think you would have to do it like deliberately poking it more the over like like where oh god the original novel in the film is like oh it's too what far right I think now if you made a total recall, you'd have to make it too far left. The fact that like how liberal ideology has kind of like ruined the military and how you have all these like kind of like ridiculous rules of engagement. Um, I think you would have to do it that way if you're going to make a, if you're going to do a new total recall. What a beautiful description of a movie that will never be made. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, I think you could do another total recall. Like it would be a re- you could easily remake this, but you'd have to spin it from a different direction. And I think it could be done. You just, A, again, it's nothing short of a miracle that Paul Verhoeven was given a nine-figure budget. And two, that will never happen again, especially after how, like, the Total Recall remake from, like, 2012. Like, has anyone here ever seen that? The Colin Farrell Total Recall? I refuse to watch it. No. (laughs) It's bad. I saw it once. It's the definite, other than having maybe one good action sequence, it is out and out bad. Like it's just like like you know like oh it's more faithful to the Paul uh, to the uh, Philip K Dick story, it's like yeah but like you forgot to make a good movie in the process. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it like, is remarkable that this ever happened. You know, like I was I was I caught like I caught like the first half hour of it before we talked and we're recording a little early today. Peek behind the curtains there, but uh, but you know I I just even the scene in the recruitment center like there's probably 300 extras like when they walk into that airport and it's just like you can just see the money on screen it's really great and like a lot of, like there's the a lot of the spaceship action like oh man there's like it's a great combination of practical models from ilm and cgi it, they although like like they made like half a dozen 18 foot long like star cruisers like that's in, like that's like I don't care again we all make fun of it especially Chris and I when it comes to Star Wars like real sets practical effects but that's never going to happen again well, you're this, never but, going to have that much practical effects in a movie on this scale ever again and well this is like I mean this is right right up there with like sort of what was going on with Phantom Menace right like it, everybody jokes about the prequels having so much CGI but there is more miniatures and models in Phantom Menace than any movie ever made and it's like right it's the same it's the same guys working on these things to a, to a, there's a big overlap right and it's just sort of like and it, the reason is because this the cgi still kind of looked like video games in certain respects and like they didn't think it was convincing enough to do it fully that way and also if you have a ship on that scale with all these with that much geometry and lights like like i don't know were the computers up to the task to doing it properly probably not like that's so but like 
that's what they said though. Like when it came to what, what's what's Denise Richards and Xander Cage's starship called? There's a I forget what its name is. Oh, the uh... Ethan Allen. It has it has some name like that? I think uh, I want to say Ron Jeremy, but that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> it's I think Ron is in it, which is why I'm thinking starship. of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. We start naming we start naming our military vessels after porn stars. Like that would be great. Like the so- like oh god like um. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah, because they say it when um, it goes down. Like uh, Jake Busey's like, "Oh, the Ron Ron John is down" or something like that. Yeah, I can't yes. remember. But like, when it gets split in half, like during that final battle, like they like I, one of the behind the scenes thing, like, like I watched, they say like, "Oh, it have taken too much time with the computer to do this." Like, so they deliberately like took a model, like deliberately built it so it would be like broken, not broke, but like it would be filmed, so it'd be broken in half, and they did all of that. And I'm just like, oh my god. Like just realizing like how like okay it would be more convincing to do this because it's weird like they didn't not that they didn't trust the special effects but it was like okay like sure we could bet our hand on the digital effects but we don't know what that's gonna be like at the end of the day so let's right, just know you know, for, know is trusted and true you got to factor in the like the like two months to render five or six frames yeah. at the back then right <laughs> so like exactly yeah and I just don't I I get it it's more expensive. And you can't like obviously like like farm these things over to like Asian countries for it to be done like ad like God and like in mass, but like I just don't get it, though with this weird infatuation that we have with the narrative of real sets, practical effects. It's like nobody is stopping them from doing this with modern films. They're choosing not to. It's kind of like what Lucas did, like and, and just to use him because he's the punching bag for all this stuff. Is it like think about it, like the reason why digital effects became so per like pervasive in the culture of. Hollywood was because they wanted to do it. Like nobody forced them to pull away from that, from practical effects. Well, I mean, I, 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 it's commercial. It's commercialism, and and kind of not as good as everyone says. But you know, it's I'd be remiss to not point out that the the first episode of Disney Galleries, The Mandalorian season two, has come out, and you do see a rather beautiful, I think, four foot model of Moff Gideon's uh, uh, Star Destroyer, which was the primary. Uh, oh, really? representation of it on screen and and i must admit when i saw it i that's what i thought it was and it, i turned out to be correct so you can there's still enough visual cues left over that that i either thought they were doing a very good job to trick me that it was a model or it actually was but like okay and not to bring this back to star wars but as rob knows everything comes back to star wars <laughs> when it comes to hollywood it's like even like i remember before mandalinian season one star that they had like i think it was either celebration or comic-con they had like the razor crest and they showed how like they shot it from like different angles and like did all the composite shots. But like, that's the thing though. Now is that like, they're only doing that. So on the press tour, they can point to it. Well, like that, my, that's my, the reason my, why my they're point, doing it. My point of bringing that up though, is that, is that it, it what it was translated to the screen. Like I, I, it's not that I couldn't tell the difference. I could. And I thought it looked great. That's what but I saying. think. But like, that's but like, it comes down to what's it going to look like 20 years from now. Like, that's my issue is that like how much of this is going to really matter. Like it's like with special effects now, I think there's, there's a, there's a Robert Zemeckis quote somewhere. Like when he was making Beowulf where he like told the writers of that film that like go nuts. And they're like, what? He's like, there's nothing that you can't write that I can't do for a million dollars a minute. And like, that's the thing now is that like, can they do this stuff? Like real sets, practical effects. And will it look convincing? Sure. But at the at the same time, also, it's like why it's like they're only doing it 
so they can point to it later on. I don't and know. I think I, that's like, where it comes down to. I don't think I don't like you're talking about Beowulf. Like that's that's getting on in years. I mean, it's oh, probably no, a not. tough watch now. I'm saying like, you know, but I notoriously like I thoroughly dislike the MCU. And I when I see little glimpses of those movies, it looks like cartoon characters jumping around to me. And, uh, and oh, you yeah. have this whole floating head syndrome where you see old man Downey Jr.'s head just floating on a cartoon character and it doesn't look like it's even attached to him. And like, I can't stand that stuff. I don't like it. I don't think it looks real. It takes me right out of it. And I think that maybe you're right that in 20 years from now, will this matter? But there's this other ad, there's this other layer to it. And it's part of the reason the, and it's, upfront stated that it's part of the reason why they did it for uh, those scenes in the Mandalorian. But it's just like, it's sort of, it's sort of tying it into the sort of visual lexicon of star Wars, for example, where it's just like your, your mind knows that the way things look in this series is like this. Why do you know why it looks that way? No, but if you compare the two properties and watch them back to back, you'll see a sort of continuity there. Sure, I don't necessarily I disagree with that though. But I think what it comes down to, I know Rob kind of doesn't like it when I go into this, but it's like kind of like intent. Is that like when they were making Starship Troopers in '95 and '96, they went to people like Phil Tippett because they're like, okay, this guy is the master of his craft, like, and that's the reason why they had him do special effects, both practical and some digital. And I think nowadays they're not doing that. Like, think about it. there is no Phil Tippett of the modern generation. There, there just isn't. There isn't somebody like think about like what was it in Rise of Skywalker? Oh, they had the chest scene. When, they when parade they pulled, him out. Oh my! I'm so glad. Like you know, like like first of all, like of course we all love Phil Tippett. I I hate I hate. Don't get me wrong. I totally hate Vice, but do yourself a favor and watch the like little Vice biopic on him because it's fascinating. Just him talking about loading up on LSD and then going to work on Return of the Jedi. <laughs> but uh, but 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 but. It, I do really detest the way they sort of that the way that Lucasfilm sort of dusts him off now and then these days for exactly what you're saying marketing purposes. It's like, oh, he did the chess set for The Force Awakens, and there's literally one background ad at in uh, one episode of The Mandalorian that was stop motion, and they they he tweeted something that his team did that, but it's a blanket kind of but thing. Like- but that's what I mean, though. So I think it comes down to like when when we see practical effects nowadays, and this is what I was trying to get at with the Robert Zemeckis quote, is that like they only like special effects now are so cheap that they can do anything with a computer, and it doesn't really cost them anything. So like, yeah, I'm not going to deny like doing a real set, like hiring Phil Tippett's people is probably more expensive than having somebody in, in an Asian country just devote how many man hours to this. But I think you're only getting those real sets, practical effects moments because they can point to it during the marketing. Like so they can appease certain fans of a certain age group. that just don't understand how the sausage is made. They just eat up the talking points that stupid websites put out there for clicks. And I think that's the thing. Like if they went out there on the Mandalorian and you had John Favreau and Dave Filoni, they're like, we did this with a practical effect because we feel that 20 years from now, we will look back people will look back at this and it'll be unmistakable. That's a real fact. The problem now is they have all these real facts there just to kind of blend in with the digital imagery. It's kind of like, I remember there was like a promotional thing for rogue one where they had like John Knowles and like, it's like his entire team, like, like watch like reading YouTube comments for the first rogue one trailer. And they're like, Oh man, I think that's a real, like, like, imp- like, like class one Imperial star destroyer. Right. I'm glad and he's like, that up. 
Because I think I, that's the yeah. point. It's like they only do these practical effects now for marketing purposes. Well, they do I, not I remember, do it for the testament of time. I, I remember the same clip, and I think it was I I think it was from a panel that he did with Doug Chang during uh, the 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 celebration that they were talking about the 40th anniversary, and um, it's like he, somebody comments that like they when they saw that star destroyer in rogue one they thought it was a model and he's like it's not but it makes me really happy that you yeah. thought it was because like i was trying to make it look like one and that's why i mean like we've gotten to a point now where with digital effects we're trying to emulate imperfection but and i get not, that it's but you know i but it's it's I just brought up the thing with the Mandalorian because like if you like if you watch that last episode and you understand that most of what you're seeing with uh, the Star Destroyer is a model, that's not a that's not an insignificant ten frames with Phil Tippett to that they can sort of point to. That's like it, it's it's more substantially used in the production. But no, but like that's what I mean though. But like I think it comes down to once again like the intent of it all. Is that like, did they, like, that's the thing. Like, is every, like, is, like, do we know, did they make a physical Slave 1 for, for, or like a physical prop model of Slave 1 for the Mandalorian season two? Like, do we I know think that? that? I think that would have been in that Disney gallery if they did. But, but, you know, but like, I don't know, like something, something, like, I just believe, and like, I wouldn't be surprised if John Knoll worked on Starship Troopers. I don't know, but like, it, well, it, it I, certainly I, wasn't I, the right well, ILM um, did work on this, so yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he maybe yeah. dabbled in it to some but, extent. Uh, but I, but I, be, I just, I don't know. I don't know if he. I believe he, he actually like likes the craft of model making because it's something that he, when he started out, he wasn't doing a ton of that kind of stuff. I think he, maybe he worked on some of the early Star Trek feature films where they were still using models, but he was done more on the compositing side. And I think he worked on like the whole like Genesis device sequence well yeah early 3d animation but like i think he sort of like actually cares about it and like he, like turns it in he, he's like reviving it even though he wasn't really a part of it when it got going and like i don't know i believe that he thinks it's good and is into it i, I don't i don't and he's the motivating force behind all of those practical models we're still seeing on screen right like on well, that, but like show. But, like, that's the thing, though. It's like, I wonder, and again, this is getting really far away from Starship Troopers, so Rob, by all means, rein us in when you want. John Nolan. Um, well, sure. But, like, I think, I think, but, the, like, it comes down to just the intent of it all. Like, I, that's my issue. It's kind of like how Rob and I talk about, like, Dr. Sleep or Tenant. Is that, like, at the end of the day, the product is the product. You can't argue with what's on the screen. I think it comes down to what was the philosophical choice behind these decisions. But, like, I think it comes down to, like, why are they doing this? Are they doing it because they feel it, it's there for a reason? But, no, but I think it comes down to intent. Because, like, if you did feel a loyalty to real sets, practical effects, I think that should extend to everything. It's kind of the idea that, like, okay, if we're going to commit to that ideology, then let's commit to it. Like, I get it. Like, it's kind of like you can't escape CGI. Like, it's it's a tool. Why not use it? It makes things efficient and much more cost effective. But I think at the end of the day, real set – like, when you do commit to real sets, practical effects is the reason why Starship Troopers is still available at a Walmart almost what? God, 20-plus years later? I, I do think that's the reason why – these things are still like available. Like, like think about it. It's are still bringing in money. It's in print, as they say. Exactly at Walmart, which is the thing that's the most ubiquitous shopping mall in the history of mankind. 
And I think that's where it matters. Like, think about it. There was no copies of Star Wars, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker at this Walmart, yet there was a copy of Starship Troopers. And I think the proof is in the pudding in that instance. There's a reason why, even though, again, there was a copy of that, but there wasn't a copy of Evil Dead too. So maybe Chris is, has a better understanding of this than I do. I do think that's kind of the point of all of this, is that like when you do like film, it's, it's kind of like how films maybe change the world isn't as direct as how I – my explanation of it isn't as direct as I would have liked to have been. But I think at the end of the day, there maybe is some inklings of this out there. It's kind of like how like I think when Rob and I talked about Mandy from a couple of years ago, like I keep seeing Mandy at like Best Buy's, Targets, and Walmarts. That film for the most part has kind of dissipated from pop culture. Yet it's still widely available to anyone who wants to seek it out. Or maybe I'm completely off base with this because nobody buys physical media anymore. Maybe that's a wrong gauge to be looking at whether a film is still pervasive in the culture. Well, I pay. I paid for a digital rental of Starship Troopers within the last year. <laughs> but but you know I'm an exception. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So I who knows? Like that's the weird thing. Like like back like the reason why Starship Troopers got two direct to video sequels was because it was a rental house darling. It was one of those films that just always got rented on like Friday and Saturday nights. Yet now, like where we used to have kind of those kind of like barometers to gauge things by, by like how many copies were on the shelf at Walmart or Circuit City or whatever, now we don't have that anymore because all that data is digital. So unless you somehow have access to, I don't know, iTunes, Voodoo, Lord knows what else, we're never going to know how pervasive certain films are other than, I guess, what? The ranking charts on some of these streaming sites, which how many, we, how many podcasts there are about it, obviously. But well, uh, that's, well like, yeah. yeah, and that's a fun that's a fun thing that Rob and I have talked about a lot over the years. Is that like when we look at whether to discuss something, we'll look up like a title and see how many episodes of something are available on like Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the podcasting platforms. I guess YouTube it, is a good reference point as well, well but because yeah, you can actually yeah. see the views there, which is nice. Sure. And like, that's the thing we've joked about. Like when we like, like when we eventually do the hot tomorrows episode that comes out in February, it's like nobody talks about that film because it doesn't exist in any sort of meaningful way. Um, and I think that's the thing that's interesting. It's kind of like, Oh God, I forget like Rob, please. I don't know. I think Rob might've died for this point because the way he's not interjected in all this, but like there was something that him and I were talking about and we were like, Oh, like, Oh, I forget what it was. It was kind of like, oh, I think that's what we were talking about the thing versus ET. And it's like, think about the amount of film discourse wow. there is on ET versus the thing. It's like, sure, like the thing got clocked in the summer of 2000, I'm sorry, 1982. But like, if you look at YouTube and podcast, there are infinitely more discussions about the thing than there will be about ET. I would imagine it's probably a margin of at least three to one, worst case scenario, two to one. And I think that just goes to show how much more meaningful a film will be, maybe not the time of its release, but it's resonant in the culture. And I think that's where we are with Starship Troopers now, is that like maybe it did not have its time then. It certainly has its time more now than it ever did in any sort of time in history, but I still don't think it's at the position it should be considering how brilliant this film is. Well, you know, it's just remarkable that it has to be explained to anyone. That's just <laughs> it's just like that tells you all you need to know, I guess. Like sure. we talked about how you might interpret some of these 
scenes that are basically like a sledgehammer hitting you over the head. And it's like, it, like it really tells you who we're dealing with. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I like, I don't know. What many, else can you say? I'm kind of curious how many, um, Oh my God. I'm curious how many like YouTube videos there are like Starship Troopers explained. It has to exist, right? Like the question I guess is how many videos versus Oh, how many videos exists? are there of people who like totally don't get it? That'd be more <laughs> that'd be interesting to see the dichotomy there. Okay. Uh, These yeah. are the titles. Starship Troopers Explored, The Arachnids Explored, The Biology of Arachnids and Starship Troopers Explored, The Brain Bug Explained, Starship Troopers History Explored. Oh my god. Like it just keeps going. Wow, they're like Star Wars theory videos with like dumb thumbnails and like character deep dives. It's really nothing to do with the point of the story at all. Hidden depths of Starship Troopers. Yeah, that might have some of it. Okay. It kinda stops after like once you get to like the eight okay, Starship Troopers, how to make fascism sexy. All right, now you (laughs) Okay, so there's a there's a title that certain that totally implies that they don't get it. That's great. Yeah, Starship Troopers, what's the difference? Five brilliant moments in film. I'll take that. And then uh, Warrior Bugs Explained. All the- <laughs> oh, my God. It's insane. Oh, God. It keeps getting worse. Somehow it keeps getting... Ten Flaws Arachnid Starship Troopers Strongest Alien Series. Yeah, like, the- can you imagine that? There's probably an in-universe wiki for this movie that, like, breaks down all the bug types. It's like, you guys missed this by a country mile, if you're even thinking about that. <laughs> Just all like, right. my God. <laughs> the most pro yeah. And in the most profound video on Starship Troopers, no one understands this movie, dot, 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 and why, two years ago by PewDiePie. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, weird to think that PewDiePie might have more influence on the culture when it comes to Starship Troopers and maybe <laughs> Starship Troopers itself. He might have told, yeah, he might have told more people about it than saw it in theaters, just based on uh his free listening audience and the population increase since 1997 exactly like it's bizarre to think that he might be the greatest spokesman for this film of the last decade what's what's the phrase that pays rob fuck it all <laughs> fuck it all uh no that was a lot of good points i uh i i wasn't chiming in because i think i forgot i was on this podcast i was enjoying what you guys were talking about so much um i i want to go back though to the um I think, Chris, you made a really interesting point that I, I've never really thought about, that the practical versus CGI in some sense of being, you know, a um, a, a visual hallmark of a franchise or something. And I, I know you guys are more steeped in Star Wars than I am, but whenever I hear about, like, the practical sets versus – or, pra- yeah, practical sets versus uh, CGI or anything like that, it, it's in that Star Wars realm because kind of, you know, I've always heard of people trying to get back to that originality. Whereas in, in some franchises, like you mentioned earlier, Chris, The Matrix, you know, they could just digitize that because they just needed it to look crazy and, and badass and slow motion and things like that. The example that came to my mind, which I know we've talked about before, Zach, with the – uh, real effects versus um, CGI was the prequel slash remake slash soft reboot to the thing where they did most of the movie with real effects. And then the uh, studio said, let's trash this and let's do CGI. And I think that's where I agree with you, Zach, that they're not really doing this for the test of time. They're doing this because of what they perceive audiences want at least for movies like that star wars i think is something that's a completely different story that you guys covered 
perfectly. <laughs> I so badly want to see that cut of the the thing. Re- it's and it's oh, the thing yeah. prequel. Like, oh my god! Like, like, like there you there's bits and pieces out there where you see like some of the the motorized animatronic tests and stuff because the Tom Woodruff Jr. has put has dropped little pieces here and there. Like the stuff that guy must be sitting on, like that he can't release. Like you even have like everybody probably remembers that um when he released the uh the unused makeup test for the green goblin in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man where it was like, Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. The, like just like the treasure trove of stuff that guy must have. But, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's so hard to believe they, they were, it was done. It was basically a locked picture with practical effects for the most part. And they painted over all of it. And whether that was like, we're led to believe that people in charge thought it looked kind of fake, I guess. I don't know, but it'd, it'd be it, um, like that's out there somewhere. So hopefully, much like Star Tours, hopefully we get it some not Star Tours. Hopefully we get it someday. But I think that kind of goes back to the point of what I'm saying, though, is that like it comes back to intent. And yeah. That, like with Starship Troopers, when they were deciding on like the visual hex, uh, visual effects houses that would work on the film, they weren't thinking of the audience's perception. And I think that goes back to even a larger issue with Hollywood now is that like the market research controls infinitely more than we're ever possibly aware of especially now in the age of data mining like i I just think like they're they're making these decisions i would imagine that when it came to like doing moff gideon's cruiser i think it probably was a market research decision how that was done i don't think it was a creative decision and i think that's the scary part of filmmaking now is that you do not have creative decisions happening anymore you have market research decisions and i just you know like you're like i don't i maybe you're right with that one but if you look at like i'm not cynical enough to believe that the way the initial sort of john noel using a physical model of the razor crest for filming the way that's presented if that is like a complete fabrication of the facts i need to like i don't know like I'm how just gonna what's, affect me. how How's the saying go? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Yep, <laughs> and that's kind of what's happening right now. Is that like I mean, that's... it's really made it's really made up to look like 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 John Noel didn't tell anyone he was working on this motion control rig at his house for like two months till it was ready to test out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. I don't Chris, know. Chris, even you, I could hear the skepticism in your voice <laughs> as you said that. I could I mean, hear it. I, I like I just like I don't know like this guy's like that guy's actually kind of a genius though like he in pretty he much is. invented Photoshop yes like, he's I a genuine know. genius I'm not he's a genius and again the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist he also he also pitched the this the story treatment for what has been uh, voted by the most knowledgeable and informed people the fans to be the best Disney era <laughs> Star Wars movie. So and like also the, and also the lowest grossing Star Wars film of I Disney era. Don't yeah, I mean like like you know what? Like I'm in that I'm in that filthy casual pool where I think that's probably the best movie they've done so far. But Oh it is. But, Objectively speaking, it's the most what's the word, well rounded in the sense that like it's audacious but also safe at the same time. Yep, and you know, like I like I'm like I don't, I'm not willing to believe that John Noel would lie to me like that. I just, I'm <laughs> You're telling me the guy that's worked in this soulless, crass business for his entire life has not been absorbed by the machine. Yeah, Maybe but John, no, no, okay, hold on a sec. I got a great idea. Let's do a new Starship Troopers, but it's in the Hollywood visual effects industry, and John Noel is Johnny Rico. 
<laughs> like that guy's, life, that guy's life story is insane, man. I know, just like Johnny Rico. He goes from being like a wealthy, privileged guy in Buenos Aires, has a beautiful girlfriend that won't sleep with him, and then he goes off to the military to be with her. She sends him a John, uh, was it a Dear John CD-ROM? It's not and, at all like uh, that. In the John Knoll story, Denise Richards is working at Lucasfilm and yes. ILM, and and he gets the girl instead of her falling in love with Xander Cage. So like it's totally different. You know what I mean? Like he forced his way in there, like as a kid, calling them up and like demanding a tour. Like you know, it's just like I, anyway. I just I think he actually wanted to do that because we're talking about a guy who was you know you've all seen the behind the scenes from the prequels where he's like on set with his little sphere where he can get the lighting reference from all the different angles and the mirror and all that and like he was involved in like a lot of model making then compositing on the earlier star trek movies like doing that kind of model work is like kind of in his wheelhouse considering everything technical possible is in his wheelhouse right so like i i believe he genuinely wanted to do it and i think that there was a chance that it would have not looked I, it could have been a, a scenario with the thing prequel where like somebody up high like could have watched that model shot of the razor crest and said, yeah, we're going to definitely take a hard pass on that. I think that was totally possible that that could have happened. I, like I said, this is a conversation best left for a, a star, a certain star Wars podcast that everybody on the call is uh, involved with. Um, yeah. You definitely like said, need Zanger's opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> Zanger, Zanger can give his two bit opinion wearing a star Wars helmet. Uh, one of his like half a dozen. Um, Okay, not to uh, to change the topic, but back to Starship Troopers. There's a sequence in this that's always bothered me, and I've always been fascinated by it. I didn't think about it until today um, in preparation for this discussion. When Denise Richards, whose character's name – or Carmen, that's her name, Carmen. When Carmen sends Johnny the Dear John letter or CD-ROM, mm-hmm. if you look at that, it changes halfway through. Oh, yeah, there's an edit. And, yeah, when she goes to like look at Jupiter or something, right? Yes, and her outfit changes and everything. So my question is, was that a continuity error? Or what goes on in the context of the film where she goes to being firmly in love with him to, like, I'm not feeling this anymore? Oh, that's an interesting idea. I definitely noticed the edit, but I was just kind of like, I, I, think I didn't think too much of it. Like yeah, imagine I, I, sending somebody like a letter in the military being like, oh, I can't wait to be with you, blah, blah, blah. And then like halfway through page three, you're like, you know what? I don't see this going anywhere anymore. I, <laughs> I think the, there's a I think there's a there's a story answer that makes a lot of sense, which is just that, like, you know, like I think like people Roger Ebert says, oh, they didn't weren't paying attention to the science in this movie at all. Well, in some regards, they were. And like these video postcards is one of them, because of course, um, like you can't have a you can't have a live call over those distances. Like it's just, you can't even, you can't even have a live call with Mars from here at light speed signal travel. Right. So, so it's, it seems like to me, like it's kind of one of those things where you make a message, it gets banked. And at some time of the month, they're all sent off at once. So like you might have, Oh, so hmm. that's what you think. You think, you think that was, it was the, the thing was banking all the messages and that's what oh mail only con- happens like once a month so whatever gets recorded in that month gets sent in in one go i could see oh. that yeah that makes perfect sense okay so it's more just kind of like slightly jarring editing than more more than anything i mean else. they shouldn't assume that the people who think this movie is about pro-fascism would be able to figure that out but... <laughs> <laughs> no yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense yeah mail mail doesn't just flow freely it's uh it's relegated to certain well, they, times of the, they gotta of the use, yeah 
Yeah, they can't fill up those important military channels with girlfriends and boyfriends emailing each other all the time. <laughs> CD-ROM mailing each other. Yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of mailing somebody a CD-ROM they have to put it into their computer and watch. I like that. You got I, 700 I megabytes. You better use all of it. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty brutal that at some point some guy burned that on the, in some office on that ship just to hand it to him rather than send it down to his computer. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, another question when it comes to the dynamic between uh, Johnny and Carmen. I know at one point I think him and Neil Patrick Harris are talking like, oh, have you, like, have you done anything yet? He's like, tonight. And like it's like, do Carmen and Johnny like get to it? Because like, because like they make a point that like when he's with Dizzy in the tent, that that's his first time. And I'm like, oh, did, they do it's uh, it's she at the end of the dance, she whispers to him, "My father's not home tonight," and then yeah. it sort of slowly fades out. So but I like, think that's what, but like in a movie where we get like like what top nudity yeah but it's like it's it's, weird that like there's really no sex scenes in this like it's weird how like sex is kind of just like there is set dressing and not there for like any sort of like like that's the thing too that like i know a lot of people like i think rob already mentioned it like the the shower sequence like it's nudity but it doesn't feel like exploitative in the like it is it's exploitative but it's not in the way that we're usually used to like it's there i don't think it's ever been so obvious to me which people's contracts specified for nudity and which didn't so and i think that's what you're getting at when it comes to the whole that that transition with denise richards at the end of the dance yeah just like we're not Mm -hmm. even gonna get him near anywhere near that so we'll get back to you later but i think there's always silhouettes you can always film things in silhouettes chris yeah yeah i I guess they like i I don't know i I, like i think if it's not if it's not implied there then what is implied though you know i think it's supposed to think it had happened there but, like, that's the thing, though, because, like, later in the film where, like, oh, God, this is, like, what, after they take, what, part of, what was it, the uh, planet, not take planet P, but, like, it's, they're on the outpost, and Michael Ironside's, like, demanding that he's, like, it's, like, it's an order, you must have fun. Yep. And, like, he goes up to Johnny, he's, like, Johnny, don't let a good, like, don't let a good thing pass. And, like, and then, like, obviously him and Dizzy, like, go into the tent together, but, like, how they play that off, they play that off, like, much more innocently than you'd expect them to. Definitely than I would expect him to, and that might be the most, you know, innocent, I I, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but maybe most tame sex scene that Paul Verhoeven's ever done. (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe most maybe most intimate because i'm thinking you think of showgirls and you think of the flailing around with kyle mclaughlin and elizabeth That's not, rob that that is not a sex scene that there is, is no sex scene to showgirls, i don't know rob. how you guys have sex that's a real sex scene right there <laughs> you got the ice pick sex stuff in basic instinct you got uh from what i've read about l that's a pretty raunchy one but then this is actually like you know when johnny rico stops her from taking the shirt off and it's covering her eyes and he's like teasing her it's like that's more intimate maybe than than i've ever seen from paul verhoven and that's where that stands that's out. what i mean that's what i mean though so like that those are the sort of moments for like they make fun of like this movie for not having any of those like human like like humanistic elements like it maybe has some of the more of those elements that we're used to in, in Paul Verhoeven films because there's no moment like that in Total Recall, like there is no <laughs> moment like that in RoboCop. Yep. Um, like that's what I mean. Like this might be his most like human film. Like think about it. Like I know everyone complains about these like not being human characters, but like they kind of are. Like like Johnny Rico feels like the most fleshed out realistic character in any of like like Chris mentioned in like. 
Paul Verhoeven's filmography with like a capital like PV. Yeah, and I think that's getting back to what you were saying about how you know we we're watching him descend into the war mindset and the propaganda machine where we get throughout the movie he still has those kernels of humanity in him whether it be at the beginning like you mentioned Chris Michael Ironside says you quoted the text but do you believe it and Johnny Rico's like well I don't know yet and then the sex scene and and you know the stuff where he cares about you know um his his family in Buenos Aires like you see those kernels of humanity as he's going through the the machinations of this war and that I think that's purposeful and I think that's the thing at the end too like or like with Johnny Rico is that like Think about it. During that, like, attack on, like, the, the fort base, and Michael Ironside is, like, bisected. Dizzy is impaled, like, through her abdomen. And think about that. Like, at that, at those two moments, he loses his father figure and his girlfriend. Yep. And his immediate action after all this has happened is, I want the whole planet nuked. Yes. And it's like that. <laughs> and, that and at that moment, Johnny Rico, for the most part, has lost his humanity. Like he, like think about like he's lost really the only two like shreds of humanity he has left, and it's like okay, no more, like like enough. And I think, and then like even like afterwards, he sees Denise Richards, and there isn't any sort of like reunion. Like he realizes it's her, and he's not even like he doesn't even uh, eh, she doesn't even cross his mind in the sense of like as a romantic partner. Yeah, I love that in the in the, the getaway spaceship where he's just like you know we need to nuke this planet. We got to we got like he's still in war mode and Denise Richards is looking at like takes her helmet off and looking at him longing like waiting for some reaction. And he's like, no, this is done. This is over. You know, you broke up with me. And then then you made Xander Cage punch me in the lunchroom, whatever. (laughs) But I think that's the thing, though, is that like I don't even think he's looking at it. It's like he recognizes her just simply as another soldier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think he's even looking at her as somebody from his past that he had any sort of relationship with. I think that entire human side of him is gone. Absolutely. Because even even later in the film where he's like has his own little party and he's like, like, oh, like, like he's like, Carmen, Carmen, like on the walkie talkie. And he's like and someone's like, oh, like, should we go looking for them? And he's like, no, like it's not the mission. And then like he eventually like what, like five minutes later, he's like, I'm taking a small squad, like a small group of people with me to go looking for her. And it's like, well, that's against regulation. He's like, everybody else go on ahead. If anyone wants to follow me, go like, like by all means you do, but suffer the consequences if you survive. And then like it's alluded to in the last, what, five minutes of the movie that it was Neil Patrick Harris that kind of whispered the idea yes. into his ear like yes. telepathically. Which is fantastically set up because do you remember that we mentioned the ferret scene? Where he's he's like go Neil Patrick Harris says to the ferret go bug mom and then Casper uh, Van Dien says you know how'd you get him to do that and he's like well I I convinced him that there was like a grub under my mom's up my mom's leg or something so he's going to eat it and Casper Van Dien says never do something like that to me and then he does it at the end and it's what leads yeah. him to the brain bug and I'm like oh that's perfect and that's the thing you have like almost like you have a complete character arc but maybe like in an inverse sort of way because at the end you have them all kind of sitting there walking together and yet they're all shells of themselves yes. they're they're all they're all broken shadows of the of their former selves and that's that's the point of the film it's about stripping humanity out of the young the newer generation and then by the final propaganda video we see of this, you see Carmen has become the captain of the sh- of the ship. Mm-hmm. You see Johnny Rico has become Michael Ironside, and that's the point of all this. And like it ends with like like they'll keep fighting and they'll win, and that's the thing. It's it's all I don't want to say it's it's a machine. 
Because yep. that's the thing. Like, like Johnny's like, let's go, let's basically nuke the entire planet, and it's like negative. Command has different like different plans for plan pay. Because like, no, it's not about winning this war. It's about the like you were saying, Rob, the industrial war machine. It's just it, that's just what it is. It's 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 a game. It's it's just everybody's fodder. Mm-hmm. Has to keep. It's going. not about yeah. winning. It's it's fodder to keep doing this. And that's the point of all of it. You just got to feed people enough small little victories. Like, like it's like, what's it feeling? It's afraid. And that's all it takes. You just feed the machine just enough that it keeps going forward without getting to the end of the line. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it's not like they're going to run out of bugs, you know? (laughs) It seems like the bugs are everywhere. Because that's the thing that always gets me. Like, the movie starts where they're like, Clundathu. Like, that's the home planet of the bugs. And and we need to destroy them for our survival. And then they do the whole Planet P thing when they get the distress call, and it turns out, you know, I think when they, they make – they're all getting attacked at, at the outpost, and then they set up the communication with, I don't know, some ship or something um, for rescue. They're like, you know, oh, we need rescue on Planet P, and the person on the comm says something like, Planet P's deserted. And so clearly there's more bugs than we know out there, at least in the, the timeline of this movie. We learn that there's more planets with more bugs, and we – can just keep colonizing or keep moving humans can just keep moving to other planets and they're going to find other species to kill. Well, yeah. Well, well, you know, you have Rue McClanahan pointing out that they can colonize other planets by like shooting their spore into space. So it's in the movie basically. Yeah. Well, Chris, I wanted to ask you, I know in the book there's another alien species, right? Yeah. I mean, like it's, there's a, there's, um, there, there is, there is, but it's sort of like, one of those one of those things that like didn't quite make it as you as you know but you know i like it's been a long while since i read it but what what are you getting at i'm just curious if you can give us any backstory on that if you from what you remember oh i uh i i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna pass right now just because i think i'm confusing it i think i'm i think i'm confusing it with another book (laughs) well i mean in terms of because i've never seen them all of the the direct-to-video sequels we have do they keep fighting bugs or are they fighting other species do we know no it's still the arachnid okay like in the original like like 1950s text there's another alien species on top of the oh sure so i was just wondering if they branched out in the sequels I don't. I don't know. Uh, who knows in the animated series? But I know. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think having a more like a more intelligent. Uh, I, I don't think having like a more sophisticated antagonist would have serviced the narrative of this movie that well. So I think that's no. part of the reason why they were omitted. But uh, it's. Uh, but I mean, like then, like I don't know. That would that would have made it interesting because, like, it's sort of like. You're supposed to like. You're supposed to feel some empathy for these bugs by the end of the movie, of course. So, uh, if you're a if you're a think if you're a, th- a thinking person, <laughs> so, I don't know. That might have. But, that's that... a, but like that's the thing, though. Like people, like I know a lot of people. Like I know even Rob's mentioned a bunch of time. Like, like one of his favorite moments in cinematic history is the Neil Patrick Harris. Like like it's afraid. Oh yeah. But like but like in that sequence right before that where you have the brain bug like suck the living daylights out of Xander Cage it's really hard to have empathy for these creatures like that's the thing i've always find fascinating about people who say that like oh the humans are the villains like say what you will about shooting the bugs with like machine guns to see a bug literally impale someone through their head and suck out their essence to the, where, to the point where they become like a dried out husk like Xander Cage does, it's hard to have any sort of empathy for the creature at that point. 
Like that's the thing. Like it's the, say what you will. Maybe it comes down to the like the essence of killing something, whether it's personal versus impersonal. Like the idea of stabbing something versus shooting it with a firearm, where one is obviously infinitely more personal than the other. But to have another creature, one that's designed to be so deliberately foreign and alien, pardon the pun, have it suck out a human being's essence through its brain in such like a graphic way. I think it's hard to have empathy for that creature at the end. And that's why, like, when people say that, like, oh, like, you're supposed to feel bad for these creatures by the end, I've never felt that way. I don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm. I mean, it all comes. I think that that notion all comes down to the the pivotal line it's afraid and then cheers erupt where it's like it can't help but take that away from the movie as in like like if you're if you're struggling to figure out what's going on here like you know you'll see somebody you see that part and then you'll see those the two gears like really struggling to like make one full rotation and be like what did that movie just do to me Well, no, like, obviously, the obviously, the, like, the intent is there, like, the fact that, like, think about that, like, you take out the alien, and, like, or the, the brain bug, and you replace it with, like, I don't know, something a little bit more cute and cuddly, think E.T., and you, and, and it's a completely different scene, like, obviously, like, like, yeah, I, I get the point they're going at, but it's just the idea that, like, having the brain bug, what's the word, like, violate a human being and kill them in such a graphic way, I think de- diminishes that. I think if you had the brain bug, I don't want to say, I think if, oh God, if the brain bug tried to analyze Xander Cage in a way that maybe he still dies, but it's be- more because Denise Richards did something to it that by accident it killed him, I think you would have, make the creatures much more empathetic. Like, it's kind of like, I, not to bring this back, or not to bring this to something like Ender's Game, and you know, maybe more meaning more the novel versus the movie with uh, Harrison Ford and oh god Ben Kingsley spoiler alert um <laughs> but like I, I think the idea is if you made the creatures a little bit more empathetic and that like oh maybe like I said instead of them having like deliberately there to suck the essence out of Xander Cage and you had like oh it's trying to maybe do a I don't know bring this back to Star Wars bore gullet him where like it just like tentacles that like wrap around him and like kind of in, like bind him, and then Denise Richards is very reactive and does something that then accidentally kills or like frightens the brain bug and it kills Xander. I think that would have worked better in making these making the bugs much more human esque as opposed to just having it be there to kill the human. Right, but are like, you that's supposed the part to work think about me. that? Are you supposed to think about that until? the very end of the movie i guess is the question right like is it part of the is it part of the faux propaganda that they're monsters and we shouldn't empathize with them right till the very last minute i don't know well i I don't know but i I think i think you could have blurred the line at that i think you could have very easily had a sequence where it's like well did the bug need to kill him or did the actions of denise richards in this hypothetical scene what's the word lead it on the path to that where it's like human being, like I said, I think there's a way to doing that. Like you either have to make the hum- make the brain bug, you have to make it a little bit more. I don't want. To, oh God, this is this is the wrong word to use, but I can't think of a better one at the moment. Cuddlier. You either have to make it a little bit less grotesque, or you have to make its actions less grotesque. You have to kind of pull back just a little if you want that ending with Doogie ha- Doogie Himmler <laughs> to be more impactful. And that's just my own two cents, not saying the movie did anything right or wrong. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You make a good point on that end, Zach, but I, I feel like I have never had an issue with that because 
we do get the the opening scene in the Rue McClanahan classroom where they are dissecting the bugs to learn about them, and we get the propaganda scene where Neil Patrick Harris is like, if you shoot one of their legs off, he shoots the leg off, it's still 86% combat effective, so aim for the spine, or aim for the, the, the opt- whatever nerve or whatever he says. Optical nerve, yeah. And, and so I feel like this is just adding to that thing that we were saying that this is all part of the machine of war that we're doing these bad things to the bugs so of course the bugs are going to do the same thing to us they're going to kill us to learn more about us and that's what the brain bug is doing sure. and then it's even bookended by the test on the brain bug that gets censored out at the very end <laughs> yes but i do th- okay there's something speaking of the test and the brain bug i think it's very interesting and i'm curious what you guys think of this the the design of the brain bug's mouth is very intentionally a reference to a certain part of the female anatomy. The vaginal mound? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why wasn't that in the IMDb it's, parental guide? <laughs> it's it's explicitly stated in the bonus features, but Well, well yeah, like obviously, yes. But like I'm I've always been curious as to why and the fact that you have also a very phallic thing protrude through the quote unquote vaginal mound. I've always found that interesting. Yeah, I've never been able to interpret what they're trying to say with that. That's uh, that's an interesting thing. You know, I uh, one part of me wants to say that Paul Verhoeven is a dirty pervert, and of course, he's well, gonna, he is. Yeah, I know, he, but he, yeah, I I don't really. I've never thought of like why that would uh, be an intentional choice, or maybe not. Maybe not that. Uh, what I mean is, I'm, I've never really understood how that ties into the film. I'm I'm in agreement with you there, Zach. Yeah, I guess that's the thing I mean. Though, like that clearly the design of the brain bug was very, very intentional, and the, and they could have very easily pulled back. Like I said, not to bring this back to Ender's Game. Like think about like and I'm just gonna reference the movie because at this point I imagine the more people have probably seen that movie at some point. I think it's one of those movies that's always for free on like some streaming service. <laughs> but it's it's the thing of it. Like you see the bugs in Ender's Game, and for the most part they are very they're not human they're not human like at all. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, like Ender saves the queen, and the queen is this very cuddly creature as opposed to all the other versions of it we've seen so far when it's fully matured and i think if they would have made the brain bug a little bit more innocent either visually or through its actions and and again you have to be very very subtle with this which we know they can be because this is a very subtle film when it comes to its satire in certain instances not all the time it knows when to go be up and beyond and well below the surface and I just think that would have made the ending a little bit more impactful, at least in my humble opinion. Not saying, like I said, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm yeah. just saying, it, at least for me. When you when you say that, because you mentioned earlier, I do, I, I am imagining and and very much enjoying the same exact scene as it plays out in the movie, like the whole brain sucking thing, but with ET, like literal <laughs> ET. That would be great. <laughs> There's a fan of it out there somewhere, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. His uh, his glowing finger like just shoots into Patrick Muldoon's forehead and sucks his brain his, out. They sucked his brains dry. <laughs> no, I, I see uh. what I see what you're saying, Zach. I, I mean, I think though there there is also that layer of you know the bugs in this movie are very much disgusting, you know. And even when we get yeah. that one of the great scenes in the movie in the propaganda video of the um when the war starts, it's uh. The narrator saying everybody's doing their part and you see little kids stomping on cockroaches like they're not stomping on like, you know, fuzzy caterpillars or like butterflies or, you know, anything like that. They're, it's very I think it's very intentional to pick the most disgusting insects. 
Sure. And that's obviously also very much a like what a the whole point too of like finding a straw a straw man when it comes to like these yeah. totalitarian governments. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, like the enemies out there, you can't do anything to stop them, but right next door there's somebody that you can pick on. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, no, like that's that's brilliant too. Yeah, like no, like definitely. No, I hundred I agree hundred and ten percent. I read that those uh cockroaches and that kid stomp when the kids are stomping on them. They were fake cockroaches. Oh, jeez, Rob, you must have been so disappointed. I know. At least, at <laughs> least I went balls to the wall and killed a real cockroach for a music video. <laughs> oh god, I'm trying to think of other like other moments in this that are just like because again, this is like one of those movies that if it weren't for Chris, it's Rob and I would literally be going through every single scene of the movie like cat and hat style. <laughs> well, I can I gotta do one every moment. You got to do one, Go which is it. well, let's definitely you know uh, pour one out for Fort Joe Smith. And one of the most delightful commercial vignettes that take place in the film where we see a completely massacred Mormon colony. And it censors the cow being eaten. But then it, a seconds later, we're looking at just carnage of all these Mormons who are just overrun <laughs> by the arachnids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that yeah, I like that the whole decimated the Mormon colony or whatever he says that's great <laughs> like could you just like you know like I think Mormons are as crazy as the next guy but can you just imagine sitting beside a Mormon in the theater when that scene came up just out of nowhere about nothing it's amazing <laughs> Mormon good. the Mormon walks out like I would imagine look at the grosses of this movie like state by state in like Utah just plummeted after opening weekend <laughs> it's just like Dude. all these Mormons died horribly next <laughs> what? Never come back to it. They're like they walk out of the theater. What the fuck was that about? <laughs> oh. oh my god! Yeah, that's 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 fun. Like yeah, like I said, there's 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 some really interesting stuff in this movie. Like what? Like even like um like I found it interesting. Like you look at like all the characters in the movie, and they all are like done by like p- like portrayed by actors that are almost like too pretty, and yet like you have the character of Dizzy. And Dizzy almost feels out of place in this movie because like she like, you know, I think Johnny Rico is a pretty human character. Dizzy's probably the most realistic character that anybody can like kind of like project themselves onto. Sure, sure. Yeah, I I like Dizzy in this movie. And uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of set up in service of her, her death for that transition for, you know, Johnny Rico, like we talked about before. Or that that kind of last push over into the into the war machine. But other than that, I mean, she's she's good it 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 makes sense she has a great character arc where she's not just the um you know like she starts in the beginning like the forlorn unrequited love type of thing okay it should be said like i understand like for the like narrative reasons of the film like johnny has to like pursue denise richards but like at the end of the day dizzy is infinitely more attractive than carmen like i'm just saying like i'm just putting it out there to me if i had to pick one i would have been like okay dizzy i don't know what your plans are after high school but let's go figure them out over like denise richards going off to like the space navy <laughs> i don't know i like them both i mean ni- 1990s denise richards is gorgeous but definitely you know she has no personality in this movie it's a dizzy just like, just like the real just like the real denise richards in real life <laughs> Insert air horn noise here. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Rob, do it. Remember, folks, she married Charlie Sheen. Like, come on. Yeah. Come on. That kind of says it all. Remember she had a TV show, Rob? Remember that from the suit? I always remember it existed because the suit. Remember Denise Richards had a TV show? Oh, yeah, I think so. It's coming back to me now. (laughs) 
Mom flashback. She didn't do much after this movie, right? I mean, she was in some She's stuff, in, but she was. Uh, was this the same year that she was in the James Bond movie as Christmas Jones? Oh, she that, that's right. She wasn't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know which. I don't remember what year that was, but yeah, what, that's right. What year was that? Christmas Jones was that? Was that ninety five? Ninety seven. I think, that's 98. I think it's, it. I, what? That's Tomorrow Never Dies, right? I think it's I think it's 90. 99 99 okay. 99 okay oh no she had a pretty big year 98 no 97 she does Starship Troopers 98 is wild things and 99 is the world is not enough damn <laughs> damn that's talk about like like, like a, a three-year period where someone was just on top of the world <laughs> Oh man! Oh, so another person in this movie that I, I totally forgot, and almost you can almost miss it. But like Denise Richards' pilot school friend is Amy Smart. Yeah, and she's in it for like so two I, shots. <laughs> well, she's like, yeah, you see her like at one point, and you see her at the very end, like where she's like under her uh, yeah her carpet rule. Yeah, and I, I I was watching it last night, and I was like, is that Amy Smart? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, good for her, I guess. <laughs> Okay, I kind of like all of. If you look at Denise Richards' like filmography, I like the names of her characters. I like how in Undercover Brother she plays the character White She Devil. Nice. And then, and then you look at Love Actually, and her character's name is Carla, the real friendly one. Implying there's more than one Carla in that movie. <laughs> I, I, I guess. I'm kind of fascinated by this. Oh my God, Denise Richards! What have you done? <laughs> what have you done? What have you oh become? My... Oh my God, what has she done? Like she's like she's kind of just done stuff, but like never anything like in any sort of like meaningful way. Like she's always been working. Has she been like... in a Sharknado yet? <sighs> when those start? Oh, maybe she was like in the Medea movie, eleven, two thousand twelve. Okay, she was in Blue Mountain State. I remember that in college. People oh, like, sure, left her in that. sure. Um. Oh my God. Yeah, she was in something called Operation Neighborhood Watch. A girl is a gun. <laughs> American <laughs> Satan. Okay, you have my attention. American Girlfriend. Satan. <laughs> Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Okay, bro, we might have to do a series of Denise Richards stuff. She's done post <laughs> Starship Troopers. She's gonna be the next Dean Norris. <laughs> yes, My Adventures with Santa. Not Satan as the sequel no. to American Satan. <laughs> mm. Oh, is she still on the Bold and the Beautiful? I mean, no one, none of us know the answer to that. Of yeah, course. That. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> Money Plane. Have you heard about Money Plane, Rob, with Kelsey Grammer? I have not. Is it a okay. plane physically made out of money, though? That'd be interesting. <laughs> no, no, it's really stupid. I'll send you closer. But yeah, she's in there. Okay. She's on the poster with Kelsey Dick Grammer and Thomas Jane. There's in it. <laughs> Um, there, you know, there, there's, um, and when it comes to sort of like, like, like we touched a little bit on the, uh, the direct to video sequels, but there's another like sort of interesting footnote in the, in the aftermath of the, of Starship Troopers. That's definitely worth mentioning. And that there was a, a vaguely children oriented animated TV show that I don't know if you got, either of you guys have ever seen any of that, no. but I remember, I remember it being on when I was a kid and, and it was playing on cable here. And I think it was just called roughnecks colon starship troopers or something like that and that uh it's probably the and it's bad but it's probably the only oh yeah it's the only piece that sort of pays some attention to the source material like these other sequels are just like what i i like 
I like, you know, I remember renting Starship Troopers 2 from Blockbuster when it came out and I went over to a friend's place and I'm like, this is going to be amazing. We turned it off after 20 minutes. Like we were so <laughs> we were so like, like Jade, we were just like, what is the world? This is so terrible. But um, but that cartoon does some interesting stuff where it it it, it actually pulls some stuff from the original book that that didn't fit into the movie. And I think you mentioned one of them earlier, like there's this vaguely sentient race that helps the bugs that I think they, I th- they have a really stupid name in the cartoon. I can't remember if it's the same in the, in the book, but um, like the, it's so it, that's why I was, I'm sort of hesitant to get into it. Cause I don't want to blur the cartoon in the original book, but like, <laughs> but cause I'm sure that's horribly offensive to, um to fans of the original author, but, but it's it's definitely more worth exploring than the sequels just because the idea that that and Paul Verhoeven was a executive producer on it which is fun as well Ooh. but uh but but it's definitely like one of those times where like it's mostly an 80s phenomenon where you'll get a a cartoon or a pitch of a cartoon based on an R-rated film for children you know like there was an almost an aliens cartoon that didn't quite happen but the toy line came out i think there was a rambo cartoon which like how are the kid I, there's several famous examples of these things where it's like i don't know how the kids were supposed to be familiar with the source <laughs> material but somebody thought it was a good idea along the way i just hope that you know they make like a rambo cartoon and all the kids get attracted to it because they think it's a tie-in to gremlins 2 when gizmo dresses <laughs> up as rambo and they're like oh yeah it's gremlins 2 <laughs> <laughs> What? That, what are you that is talking about. Rob? He's describing the subset of the audience that that uh that doesn't get the scene where it shows the recruitment guy's robot arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do want to point out that I, when Starship Troopers Two was released on DVD in the summer of two thousand four, much like Chris, I was super hyped for it. Like I remember being so excited for this because I love Starship Troopers. I remember like I got the DVD immediately. And I only watched it once. I've never watched it again. I only have one memory from that movie. One. I remember it's like because like it's one of those like directed video movies where it all takes place like in one room because they had like a budget of like fifteen dollars. Yeah, it's like and blue. I remember, like, there's just like phony walls right up against yeah, them everywhere. Yeah, like, like it's one of those things where like if somebody shuts a door too hard, like the entire set shakes. <laughs> and and like I remember like there's like a female commanding officer. And I remember at one point she says the line like, "There's too much fucking going on around here. Not fighting." And I'm like, what? I remember being like 11 years old being like, what is this? I'm like, I just want to see some bugs. I just want to see some bug shot. And you know, I, I actually think the animation quality got even worse with the third one. And if you just want to treat out there, <laughs> definitely, definitely don't watch the third one, but go on YouTube and look up the trailer for Starship Troopers 3 and you'll see some of the like we're talking about this probably came out 10 years after the original movie and like just seeing those arachnid aliens rendered in the most piss poor cgi you could possibly imagine is so disheartening compared to like like and that's the one that that stars casper van dien again as well the third one (laughs) so like it's just like it's like it's like how did this happen like how was the ball dropped so hard on this franchise it's really it's really a a sad moment because because the movie never had like that first movie was a like it wasn't a flop but like it made no it, it lost money in theaters and they got lucky and they recouped it on home video right like, but it's like leave it alone man like why you like you know like what who's thought it was an amazing idea to just keep pummeling that dead horse that like you know what i mean it, like, because it made a ton of money on home video 
because they're like, okay, so like there's a market here. Yeah. We just don't want to spend a lot. We just got to spend enough money so we can like keep roping in that audience. It's like how they keep making Tremors movies. It's like it's like there's a market here. It's just a very small market. Hasn't this happened with a lot of Verhoeven's American films? Like other people go on to make sequels and stuff. Well, yeah, because like the thing about those that like Starship Troopers did not make money in theaters. All of his other films of like the I guess like Chris put it like definitive Paul Verhoeven all made a ton of money. Like RoboCop made an insane amount of money. Total sure. Recall made an insane amount of money. Basic Instinct made an insane amount of money. It wasn't until Showgirls where it was like, oh god, like he kind of jumped the shark, and so he went running back to his wheelhouse of like RoboCop. And the only problem is that like. Starship Troopers made money. It just cost way too much to make, and mm-hmm. that was the issue. Like if they, I think about it, like Jurassic Park, like three years earlier, cost sixty three million dollars. This cost forty more million dollars. Like that's the issue. Like if they could have kept the budget to like in that same range, you have easily gotten the Starship Troopers two in the early two thousands easily. Okay, and that sure. was the issue. Is that like it just cost too much money? It's it's like a lot of movies do that. Like oddly enough. It's just like they made money. They just didn't. They just made too. They just, their the the production budget was too high. Well, there is a Showgirls too as well. I don't know if you're aware of that. Zach. Yeah, I yeah I know, Rob. I listened to the episode. I was, I was, yeah. was going to make a joke that like there probably is a Showgirls too, but I didn't actually know for a fact till just. There's now. a basic. There's a basic yep. instinct too. Yep. Yeah, but that was treated yeah. like a real movie, unlike Starship Troopers two and three. Basic Instinct 2, there's a director's commentary, and halfway, to, halfway through, you hear a gunshot and a loud thud. That's the director's <laughs> commentary. Oh, man. Yeah, but no, like, even, like, uh, think about all the Paul Verhoeven movies that have been, like, bastardized. You have, like, the RoboCop remake, mm-hmm. the Total Recall remake, the Showgirls 2, uh, Starship Troopers 2, Starship Troopers 3. RoboCop suffered that really bad. Like, I feel like... I and I actually don't know to this day. Like I know about RoboCop two, and then I I don't know if it's three and four. Like one of them is like cobbled together four? out of a, out of a TV. I think one of them is like a TV series that got cut short and then bastardized into a film. <laughs> like maybe it's four. Like it really got muddy towards the end. Well, I know. Like oh god, I think what three is like direct, like almost direct to video. Like it got released in the theaters, but like, it's just like, Oh God, what's his name? Peter Weller didn't even want to be involved with it. Yeah, I um, swear so one of them one... was like a mini series that was like later cut into a direct to DVD film or something like that. But, um, yes, Starship Troopers too. I, I think we should, I, I think that's one of those movies too, Rob. I think the cinematis, we need to ask Mark Cuban for like $200 million and we'll make another Starship Troopers movie. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's like I saw I recently saw a trailer for a new animated one and I was like, what the hell are they doing? Who allowed this? It's like the worst trailer I've seen in a while. It features Casper Van Dien and the the lady who plays Dizzy in voice actor form. And and it's like and the animation, the character animation is just horrifying. And it looks like it's from like 10 years ago. Somebody. Just, let's get on change.org and like shut it down. <laughs> I, no, I don't we'll know. Do, we'll, I'm going to, we got to figure out who owns, you know, I found out actually Disney released this film overseas. Touchstone was the release, was the international distributor for Starship Troopers. It's a Sony film, but they released it internationally. So maybe Disney has some hand in here, but I want to do, okay, we'll do call up Netflix. They're handing out, they're writing blank checks to anybody nowadays. Tell them we want to do a Starship Troopers mini series, six episodes 
and we're going to do it the way I said. We'll get all the original actors back because nobody outside of maybe Neil Patrick Harris is doing anything right now. Sure. <laughs> like, there's no way Denise Richards and Caster Van Dien are going to say no to this. Like, all we got to do is promise Caster Van Dien some, like, hot soup. We promise <laughs> Denise Richards some blow, and everyone will be back on board. <laughs> like, Caster Van Dien is currently playing Johnny Rico. Like, still. <laughs> <laughs> he's out he's out like in a new mexican desert just shooting bugs no like just they in a sound ever... booth but yeah <laughs> both he's like he's that. actually in that new movie like i'm serious like it's messed up <laughs> i i know i because because again it's, it's a property that people recognize they're gonna keep making it chris what a time how about that alive. for hbo matt <laughs> instead of doing a new version of doom we should do a new version of starship troopers i'll take it i mean <laughs> they're gonna do Can't it eventually right it's almost like exactly uh, the law of very large numbers everything's might... gonna happen <laughs> exactly if they're if anyone's gonna bastardize it we should at least bastardize it with love <laughs> even if they even if they leaned like did a remake that like super leaned into what people called like pro-fascism stuff in the original book and just made it like nuts like even that would be good and interesting <laughs> you know what i mean like like i said how has it not how has it not been done i don't know it's it's like but like there is a way to do a new starship troopers you just now have to think about it. look how far the military industrial complex has changed not just in 20 years but in like the six like the 70 years since the original novel was written you could very easily change that you, you could so easily do that by today's standards you like by like like playing with like everything that happens nowadays when it comes to just like rules of engagement and just the like over the over liberal tendencies of just politics and its influence on the military i think you could very easily do that i think if you gave rob and i i don't know a hundred thousand dollars in like like a briefcase full of cocaine him and i could bang out this script in like a month (laughs) very easily very easily rob and i could do this I don't know. Chris can come in and he, well, he can consult for like fifty thousand dollars. I want you know. Rob, I want the cocaine loose in the briefcase. <laughs> well, you know, Robert oh, Robert Hunter knocked out the original book in six weeks because yeah. he was mad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like if you look at his IMDb credits, like the the writer of, uh, of both RoboCop and Starship Troopers between like what was it eighty seven and ninety seven? Like there's nothing in between there other than just like lines of cocaine. <laughs> And I'm not joking, Rob. Like, I, it's very much it is literally a suitcase full of cocaine. It's it's not. It's just powder in a suitcase. Yes. <laughs> no more, no less. Oh. wonderful! Great. It's great. It's great. <sighs> but yeah, like, uh, no, this movie. Uh, anything else about this movie? I'm trying to think. Like again, like we could go through literally every single scene in this movie. The fact that they have back the tanks. Like that's oh, great. Oh yeah, yeah. I really like. Um... Uh, Sugar Watkins, how much he hates yeah. bugs. He's great, you know, and he blows himself up to take out the bugs when he's like, he, he's like, he's like, Watkins, you can't stay here. And he's like, I'm trying to kill some bugs, sir. And it's just like, that's all he wants to do is just kill these things. It's it's great. It's over the top. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Even I mean, like, God. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, the whole, the whole sequence where they take that fort and defend it is like just some of the best like sci-fi alien action oh, yeah. that you can ever like forget the whole story just like there that's a, a cinematic achievement just like defending that fort for a little while like for when this came out and just how it holds up over time there's a lot of great stuff there thanks for hitting back to tanks because i just had that as a one bullet point note that i was going to fail, <laughs> fail out on 
<laughs> and then um no that fourth it, scene you're right chris yeah. like them just shooting like everybody over the edge just shooting downwards as the bugs get there and then when the flying bugs come in and we even get that great shot of like the um the the bugs like ripping down the supports of the wall and it's it's crushing other bugs but it doesn't matter there's so many of them it's just brute force um even before that i love when that general comes out of like the closet and he's like, we're all going to die! And he's just freaking out. And it's, it's, it's Yeah, that's a great sci-fi s- setup and scene. Rob you, Rob, you know who the general is, right? Yeah, the coach from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> oh, but he's also Quato from Total Recall. Oh, yeah, that's true. I, I remembered him more recently because he's, uh, he's the, uh, the one that uh, gets whipped in the bathroom in Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street 2. Yeah, the BDSM uh, gym coach. Marshall Bell, yeah. <laughs> Quaid. Quaid. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, but, like, even, like, going back to, like, that fourth sequence you guys were mentioning, like, that, even that part of the film feels almost more, like, Western-esque, like it's Custer's last stand. Yep. Like, the idea that, like, okay, they are going to lose, but how much of them, how many of them will be able to survive this at the end of the day? And I think that part, too, like, you don't, like, like you don't get that in movies any day. There's, like, this visceral, like, it's funny. It's, like, almost an entirely CGI battle, except for the fact where you have real actors and, like, you have, like, that little, like, small set. Yet, like, there's such a visceral nature to it. Like, it I think, feels I think, like these people are about to be, oh, like, they are swarmed and being overwhelmed. And I think there's something unique about the fact that it's just, like, hard sunlight. Like, you yes. know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that I don't know if that's why the CGI looks better or worse. I would I, I feel like anecdotally you would hear that that's not good for primitive CGI. But like, I don't know. There's something about the fact that it's like not overcast at all. It's just direct, harsh sunlight on everything. And 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 maybe it's works narratively because the first couple encounters with the bugs are at night. And mm-hmm. it's just like now you're going to actually it's like more of a, like we're finally going to like reveal their form a little bit more. But it's uh, it feels novel that it's just so bright and colorful. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, nothing is being hidden in the shadows. There's no moment of Luke Skywalker, like, mur- I'm sorry, not murdering droids, dismantling droids <laughs> with his hood up for nine tenths of the battle because they want to save money. Like, that's like that's the great part. Like, it doesn't like like even like at the end where you have like the giant like beetle that can like incinerate things with like its little like forehead, like, like, yep. in, like flamethrower. Like, even like the drop ship is like, like pulling away. You see it trying to incinerate the ship. And like you can see parts of the corner of like the drop ship are like tinged with black. And it's like, that's great. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a small detail, but like it matters. Like you might oh, not have and- noticed it, but your brain did. And how about that guy who just gets like melted as they're escaping and he's just like screaming and like melting into acid as the ship takes off? That's exactly. some good stuff. Oh man. And I mean, it's a I really think creative death in this. The action scenes are I think are so good because it's not the whole first like big war scene that which is in the dark, and then the outpost scene. I think out of all of those, the only time we see somebody reload is when they're on their last stand trying to get on the ship. And it's like, Dizzy, she's like, I'm out. And then he, like, throws her a clip and says, like, make him count. But I love the fact that that whole first war scene, we don't see anybody reload. And that makes it flow so much better and makes it more visceral because it's just like, you know, well, it doesn't matter if if, if either the bugs kill me. If they, I had to take the time to reload, the bugs would kill me. So why even waste time on that? Just have the just total push from both sides uh, against each other it's awesome but then it also adds to like the surrealistic nature of that battle at night like the yeah, fact that it's almost yeah. nightmare-esque like it's almost like it's it's removed from reality absolutely it's it's great uh starship troopers they don't make movies like they used to 
<laughs> yeah, just with the the uh, just like I was saying before to mention again, like everything is so set up, you know, and and everything kind of pays off and like you just mentioned our one of our favorite phrases zach is you might not have noticed it but your brain does like i love the fact that there's that dude in the shower when they're like why are you here they're all asking talking about why they're there in the military and the one guy's like i'm here because they're going to pay for my schooling because you know without that it would cost an arm and a leg and that dude gets his limbs ripped off later and i'm like that's such a good touch like everything everything is set up everything pays off everything's so minute for or you know Every level of detail is so fleshed out. It's just a wonderful thing. And, you know, there's never any huge, crazy exposition, which Zach knows I love in movies. You just see it. You know what's happening. You're along for the ride. Exactly. It knows when to hold your hand at appropriate times. and It knows when to let go. Like yep. any good filmmaker intuitively knows how to do. Yeah, even the, the the Clancy Brown thing I love where he's like uh, – he goes to, what, Dean Norris and he's like, I want to see battle. And Dean Norris says the only way you're seeing battles is if you demote yourself. And then at the end of the movie, when it's revealed he's the one who captured the brain bug, he's, uh, Casper Van Dien says something like, oh, you know, good job, sergeant or lieutenant or whatever. He's like, nope, I'm a private. And so it's like, yeah, it's like that's, that's – we only needed two scenes to really make that payoff. It's perfect. Clancy Brown's the man. <laughs> he is. Mr. Krabs is even the like- man. <laughs> Good old Mr. Krabs and everything, all the other 800 million thousand things that he's done over his career. Yeah. <laughs> well, even like other moments of foreshadowing, like even like we're like Jake Busey's like, why are we sitting there like using like knives in a nuke war? Mm-hmm. And he like pins his hand to like the target board. And at the end of the film, we see Denise Richards with a knife slice off the thing of the brain bug. It's like it's good. Like it's it's all there. It's all baked in. Yeah, I, I love that Clancy Brown line as well. He says it so matter-of-factly, where he's like, your enemy cannot push a button if you disable his hand. <laughs> Put your hand on that wall. <laughs> Medic! Oh Even the little so the good. little Jake Busey touch that he just plays like violin. That, uh, I don't even know why we need that, but we got it. And it makes it fits so well. It's a little he's bit of world-building. He's He's got a space violin. Yes. He's he like the neon green, like plastic violin. Which I love. Is <laughs> yeah. it a violin or is it a fiddle? Uh, I, I don't know for sure, but it's got to be a Steinberg. It's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's great. Yeah. Every, like every le- layer of this movie down to the tiny details is, is fantastic. You know, even like I, I've just, the things that I'm remembering now is like when what Casper Van Dien tells his parents, he wants to go into the military and his dad's like, I'd rather be, you know, like lashed in the lash than see you go into the military. And then Casper Van Dien ends up getting the, the 10 lashes for his, his bad practices as a squad leader and stuff like that. Oh, it's all so good. I guess there's one last thing, considering that we have one of uh, Canada's most premier toy collectors with us. Did, did Chris, did you ever delve into the Starship Troopers toy line? No, but it is it's one of those things where like I've looked into it and it's been tempting, but you know, it's it's cool that it was ever made. It's like the cartoon series. It's like like God bless these crazy people we no longer have in our culture who like did these kind of things for children. But um <laughs> you just you can't I you can't, I can't splinter off like that or like you know, it's already like it's already like like I have like so much of the vintage stuff that it's like I can't <laughs> I, you know, it's like I've decided. Like, there's only what, so many shelves in my yeah. house. I know it's one. It's basically one entire wall, and like you guys have probably seen it on calls before. But uh, you know, it's just like 
like I've I've decided and accepted that that's the coolest stuff and like you know you can't splinter off but you know I've have I have I checked out videos of them and then been like damn I should eBay some of that stuff absolutely but I've resisted <laughs> the urge. I love the fact you look at some of these names. It's not just like the characters' names. They have like little like things in like parenthetical. Like there's Johnny Rico, Mega Marauder. There's Carbon Ibanez, Bug Thrasher, Ace Levy, Toxic Raider. Oh yeah, well like this is the time period where we were getting like like action figures of like Buff Luke Skywalker with mech suits. You know what I yep. mean? Like this was just the the what was happening at the time with toys, right? So like those like when you have Batman in 40 different colors with different accessories just repainted slightly and given like some sort of chest piece that shoots something. So like that it's it sort of fits in with what was going on at the time. Some of this stuff is actually really cool. Like they have like the tanker bug like we're like with a couple of little figurines. They have like the retrieval drop ship. Like some of this stuff is like, yeah. If you were like six or seven at the time, you have had a lot of fun with this. Well, the only one I really thought about getting was just like the sort of standard arachnid warrior because yeah. like that's probably the most iconic design from the film. It, it, it but uh, you know, it's you, you just you can't have it all. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's tempting though. Like something like it's kind of like it brings back instant KB toy memories. Like, I look at this stuff, and it's like, oh, I never would have seen this at Toys R Us. This was 100% then, like, a KB Toys thing. Right. Yeah, the, I, I never saw those when when they came out. I think my first awareness of this movie was, like, the DVD release. But it was, like, a early DVD release, like, probably around, like, 2001 or something like that. I think the name of this movie also is, like, to, like to, like, an uncultured person, like, just the title is, like, sort of off-putting. And I think that's part of why it, it's not like as culturally pervasive as it should be i think there's just something about like starship sounds like a star trek like nerdy word and then like troopers is just like is this an army movie like i think like if you don't know the source material or like what it is it's just like if you're the uh, joe i don't know anything you just hear that and you're like i don't like star trek i think that's the brilliance though they gave the most generic title ever it's supposed to be like prop it's supposed to be like a generic like propaganda film I think. right i just think that, that there's some subset of the audience that that turns off unfortunately sure i don't unfortunately. know unfortunately well any other final thoughts on starship troopers from you guys i think yeah, that was everything i had i, I i've got nothing okay there's a, i can other than literally going through every single scene of the movie yeah i got nothing else it's you know it's like you're tempted to tell people to watch it but like if you're if you got to this point of the podcast and have never seen it drive yourself smash straight through the gates of the mental asylum like don't <laughs> even put the brakes on it go all. go to walmart pick up the 4k blu-ray for 15 dollars. you won't regret it all right well then i guess that uh brings us to our questions i think i want to start with you zach uh since this is uh, your series what do you think for cinemodities and late night for starship troopers Oh, Rob, it is a clean sweep across the board. The total recall precedent does not come into effect because this movie <laughs> lost money at the box office in its initial run. So, yes, uh, easily a cinemati because there's probably quite not another film like this and a late night movie without a doubt. This is a fun, rousing film. And you, maybe maybe not. I, I do say yes to late night movie, but I think that ending it makes you a little too pumped. It's like they'll keep finding and they'll win. And it's like, yeah, I'm gonna go out to the back into the bike. I'm gonna go out and buy like one of those. Oh god, like those um, 
oh guys we're killing like what uh carpenter bees like what the salt gun oh you, like, sure with, like little salt pallets you can like shoot like carpenter bees with it you want to <laughs> get one of those just run around like the house just shooting bugs gotta that, find some bugs to kill <laughs> exactly it's hard to do that at midnight so uh I'm going to say late night movie with a slight asterisk. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm actually total agreeance with you. I think this movie is so This is this was a weird one. It it's such an excellent satire. It's a fantastic film. It's so well made. Uh that I was almost tempted to be like it can't be a cinemodities, but with just what this is, it has to be. It fits the bill. And hell yes to late night movie. I'm totally right there with you. Um it, this is something that, you know, people should see and know more about and like I said at the start, learn that it's not just some bug war movie so chris what do you think for cinemodities and late night um you know just the how much we've sort of talked about this weird thing going on culturally where like somehow so many people don't get it it's like i can't i can't i couldn't allow myself to do anything to disservice one person out there from watching it so i'm gonna have to say and just for every detail of the movie this is what you this is what we should be expecting movies to be to have more than one layer to them to have a couple things that you should think about after the fact and you know as far as that's concerned it's i'm gonna give it a yes on both i think it's a cinemodity and as far as late night movie goes I have employed it in the prescribed fashion at least three separate times. Nice. All right. We're all in agreement. I don't think this ever happens. <laughs> is there, I have a question. Is there a, is there a Paul Verhoeven movie that would not be considered a late night movie? Mm, no. That's... All of them I've used in the prescribed fashion. Yeah. All the, seven, the seven I listed anyway. <laughs> yes. That's okay. Yes. In the, in the, oh, it's one thing. Okay. One thing I do want to bring up, and it probably would come up again at some point where we were talking about like, what ah uh, no we already did Total Recall because Marvel Cup again. I what's the deal with Paul Verhoeven's dream project Crusade with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Have you guys heard about? I've this? heard of it. I don't know. I don't really know a lot about it though. Every I time I hear it. this, like in, in my research for this, like it comes up because like Paul Verhoeven, I was always his dream project that he kind of could never get off the ground. Like after Showgirls, and by that time too, Schwarzenegger was starting to become like washed up because like last like Last Action Hero happened, and like like Schwarzenegger was like going into like his end of days phase where it was like oh <laughs> like Schwarzenegger's kind of doing schlock. Um, but like anytime I hear like there's like I think there's like one piece of like there's a couple pieces of concept art that are out there, and anytime I think of it, I automatically think of the scene from Last Action Hero of to be or not to be, <laughs> not to be. Is the castle like explodes? And anytime I think of anytime that movie comes up, like I just want to see that movie. Like to me, that might be my own personal like Jodorowsky's Dune. <laughs> okay. I want to see Paul Verhoeven's Crusade with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just I just want to see that so bad like I could like a hundred million dollar like early to mid like 90s just like medieval film with Schwarzenegger just doing Schwarzenegger type stuff like I just want that so badly. Well, you know, I as much as I, I'd like to uh, to believe it'd be a possibility because Arnold still is going back to doing some stupid stuff. I saw some trailer with him and Jackie Chan that was not to be believed. But, um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, uh, uh, Verhoeven is looks like he's got some some in development stuff on IMDb, but we all know there's. I haven't caught up with anything he's done recently, but we all know there's no chance that the world's allowing him to be the Paul Verhoeven of old. So I'm not. I haven't. I haven't looked into any of that. But um, and also the man's 82 years old. You know, like every day we have left with him as a gift. But I don't think we're gonna get around to that, unfortunately. 
Okay, remember, okay, Rob and Chris have homework. They have to go watch L before next time we reconvene. Because <laughs> I remember watching that and being just kind of over, like, underwhelmed because of, like, what, like, the IMB, IMDB description is. But it's a pretty good movie at the end of the day. Okay. I know I know. I have a copy of it, so I can check it out. Um, but are we saying, so we, uh, we should do a, a two weeks in a row on Knights of Vader. We start with Alien 3, and then we go to L. <laughs> Oh my god, L would be interesting because like you read the description for it, and it's like okay, you look up on IMDb, it's like oh, Michelle seems indestructible, head of a successful video game company. She brings the same ruthless attitude to her love life as to business. Being attacked in her at her home by an unknown assailant changes her life forever. When she resolutely tracks the man down, they are both drawn into a curious and thrilling game that may at any moment spiral out of control. Like that sounds like a great premise, and like you watch it, and it's like oh, it's your typical like 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 revenge lover film and like it's 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 still good though like it's still good it's just like you don't expect that from like an actress that's like oh good lord like i think 60 by the time the film was made oh wow okay okay yeah and it's also i think all it's all i think oh god i don't know what language it is. i think it might be i forget what language it is but it's not in english i think it's french if i remember correctly yeah i i think so too yeah Right on. Okay, I will. Another thing to put on my list. <laughs> Rob, if you ever get bored, look up the parents' guide to L on. Uh, <laughs> look up the sex and nudity se- section because it's listed as severe. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do all. Okay, to get to wet everybody's appetite for this movie, I'll read the first one. We see a clip of a computer generated monster holding a woman down on a table using its tentacles to go up the woman's skirt. The clip is seen at least three times. <laughs> oh, okay didn't expect that <laughs> there you go rob there you go <laughs> oh man okay okay well i guess with uh with that little verhoven we started with a verhoven tangent we ended with a verhoven tangent perfect that brings us to our snacks i have to say this is one of those movies that i get trapped into just watching and i wasn't thinking too much about snacks but i think we're all in agreement that the cinemonies restaurant should have some co-ed showers right <laughs> Mariska <laughs> Hargitay is not going to like that, Rob. She doesn't like 99% of the restaurant, I think. She likes the front hey, door. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> True that, son. But co-ed, that. co-ed showers where people can, um, what was it, rub their vaginal mound. That's great. Um, <laughs> the only other one I thought of, we, a scene we didn't mention, is I really like the, um, there's that part of the propaganda film where there's like soldiers. They're, they're like, here's our guns, kids. You want to hold them? We should have soldiers come in to show off their weapons to the kids in the sin emodities portion of the restaurant. Oh, just straight up that? Yeah, it's like a show and tell type of thing, you know? And they can, maybe they can hold them and, and, you know, we'll give them loaded weapons. I think it works. <laughs> okay. What, what did you guys have for, for snacks? Oh, I, I guess the other thing I want to say is I don't want to eat bugs. I don't like the idea of eating bugs. So that's, I think that's low-hanging fruit. We could cook up some bugs and stuff like that. But I don't want that. So I'm sure Zach's gonna fight me on is, that. <laughs> is there any? Is there really any like food and drink in this movie? Not even at that graduation dance, really. There's a there. You got a you got a mess hall scene with some mashed potatoes and and soggy looking corn, which I guess you could yeah parlay into some sort of military ration menu item. <laughs> <laughs> My only contribution is I like the idea of like like. At some point, was it Rico's getting a tattoo and Jake Busey like dumps vodka on it? Oh, yeah. I like the idea. Like for our first aid stations, it's just vodka. <laughs> oh, that works. That works. That's fine. I mean, exactly. We, we don't need a first aid station. We have we have a full fully stocked bar, and we charge people if they get cut. 
<laughs> okay, okay. Chris, any any snacks you were thinking of? Well, you kind of ruined mine. Like I was gonna take. I was I was imagining. What if I were the the guy in charge of the menu, the head chef at the Cinemati's restaurant, and I watched Starship Troopers, and I was very stupid, and I didn't get it, <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, you know, I hate those bugs. Let's put an appetizer of just a nice big bowl of fried crickets. Ooh. I don't know. Something about eating bugs weirds me out. And I've done it. I've had, like, the candied crickets or whatever they are. but And they're, I did not enjoy it. I don't know. Eating – I know some places around the, the actual world do it. But eating bugs? I don't know. I don't know. Disgusting. <laughs> I, think we should, I think we should have – you know what we should have, Rob? Because if you look at this in this movie, this movie has a lot of, like – different colored goo we should have some goo in the restaurant <laughs> I like that. It's just, goo. <laughs> just having exactly. like squishy like, dispensers where yeah it's spins. like it's like orange goo green goo there's all sorts of goo in the movie like we need more goo in the cinematis restaurant the, different I'm, shades of it i think you have hit the exact pitch for like the nickelodeon shows with the with the slime and stuff <laughs> like that we just need goo Kids like goo. You know what we do? <laughs> <laughs> no, we do. Speaking of toys from like the late nineties, early two thousands, we find all of like the like reserves of gack that like Nickelodeon made like in the early two thousands, and we buy that and we spread it around the restaurant. I like that. I, we have we we gack. find the remaining supply of the world's gack. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it may have outlived its shelf life, unfortunately. It's just, it's just like, what? What would that even look like now? Like, it would just, like, would have evaporated. So it's just, like, what, some, like, glitter, like, in a, like, a sealed, like, plastic package? It's <laughs> really dried out, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You look up GAC in Google Images. Oh, my God. It, it looks like it's radioactive. Oh, my God. Yeah. That poor girl probably has, doesn't have hands anymore. She probably has, like, cancer, like, cancerous lesions all over her fingers. <laughs> Well, it's just that those type of products definitely don't don't age well. It's like a, if you want a real horror show, look up like a look up like a seventies Stretch Armstrong. What it looks like today? Ooh. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, I found an article titled "How to Make Slime Without Borax." Nothing bad can come from that. Without borax? <laughs> yes. What more borax? There's an ingredient for the menu item right there. Get some borax. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wait, it's a toy called Smell My Gack. God, are you sure that's a toy and not an adult video? <laughs> <laughs> okay, guess some of these flavors. These flavors are insane. Flavors? Yeah, there's not, flavors. You said smell. Wouldn't it be sense? Oh, <laughs> are, are we are we eating them? <laughs> it's both. Oh my god, Rob. They have okay. This is insane. They have vanilla, bacon, okay. flour, green apple. And the best one, stinky shoe. <laughs> is it flour as in like the plant or, or the, the baked thing you use in baking? The, the, the plant. Oh, I would have loved it. <laughs> it was just flour scented. Yeah, it that was, that like was bothering no- me a little bit. It smells like nothing. <laughs> All right. We're going to go and buy some cupcake flavored gack. <laughs> okay, okay. Actually, I have another idea for the Cinematis restaurant. Um, it might be not applicable to Starship Troopers. They have Nickelodeon has their make your own gack toy lab set. We should have that for Cinematis. It's different creations for the Cinematis restaurant. You can bring. I like, remember how they used to have that for like um, 
like board games, like oh, it's like Wheel of Fortune, like board game or Jeopardy. It's like, oh, you can yeah. bring the game home with you. We should do that for Cinemati's. Like, have your own like insert like menu on the restaurant here. Bring it home and like it's a board game version. Like <laughs> Cinemati's, like a make Cinemati's your own restaurant like, board game is a yes. fantastic idea. Like Cinemati's, like make your own glory hole caviar. <laughs> These ideas, both of these ideas are great. Chris, I love the board game idea because we would need to make the board infinitely big. Oh, it's, it's, it's literally, no, it's literally just, it's literally just like, you're just redoing the game of life where like random chance just has horrible effects on you and you just sort of slowly move through it and various incidents befall you outside of your control. That sounds about right. You lose your child like... in the restaurant. <laughs> Go back three spaces. <laughs> Oh my god! I want to say that Nickelodeon make your own gag thing might be responsible for the meth crisis because it looks like how you, like, like a meth lab set. I feel like I remember seeing commercials for that or something way back when. Now that you I don't it. deny it, I don't deny it. There's one called Gacks Alive. The magic wand brings mag- magnetic gag to life. What the hell is this? <laughs> this is the strangest episode of Starship Troopers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. But yes, that's my contribution to the restaurant. Okay, okay. I dig it. I dig it. Any others from you, Chris? Or are you uh, gacked out? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm tapped out with my very unoriginal bug-eating idea. <laughs> We're all gacked out now. Well, then, uh, I, I think, uh, Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for talking about Starship Troopers and adding a bunch of craziness to the conversation. Imagine that now, at the end of this podcast, someone is listening to it and a computer screen pops up and it's and it's got you on the screen and it says would you like to know more and they click yes what more can you tell us about you chris <laughs> uh go ahead and follow me on instagram at the chris porteous and i and maybe there's already a hilarious alien 3 episode on knights of vader by now who knows spoiler alert there's not <laughs> all right zach would you like to give uh, any indication on what we're doing next week the next movie that should have uh, c- uh, collapsed governments <sighs> <laughs> I was got you know what's so funny, Rob? There on the blank check episode for Starship Troopers. I thought we were going to get this what? whole way without you having to mention this. Zach. <laughs> I have to mention oh, Starship Troopers. Was that they were talking? Whoever their guest was was like, like, like Griffin's talking about how the guest was like texting them that morning before they recorded. Like, guys, I can't believe we're going to change the world by recording an episode about Starship Troopers. <laughs> and I was so tempted to send that to Rob this morning. I was so tempted, except for the fact that I think eventually Rob would get to that and be like. It's been that time that like Rob made a really funny joke and I figured out that like he ripped it off from like a Tosh.0 episode and I just became like infinitely depressed and I realized I'm going to be better than that person. I am not going <laughs> to rip off a blank check joke. Okay. I'm just okay. going to I'm just going I'm just going to rip off their entire format for the podcast. All the way down to our producer. Oh, God. <laughs> but he's not the producer. We've been over this. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's not the producer. He's the Ben-deucer. So now that you've got blank check out of the way, would you is there, would you want to give any indication of what we're doing next week? All right. We're, we're probably going to do Tron slash Tron Legacy unless I change my mind between now and next time we record. There's a 50% chance that we'll talk about something next week. Perfect, perfect. I like that. So that leaves us with uh, how do we end this episode? And uh, I think the the only thing that I want to end this episode with is uh, at the graduation party. They have this band, like or these singers. I think yes. I don't know if you see the band, and they are playing a rendition 
of David Bowie's I Have Not Been to Oxford Town, but they changed the lyrics for a later, for the future, you know, the 22nd century, and they called it, call it I Have Not Been to Paradise. So I'd like to throw that in there in reverse. What do we think? I am on board. Okay. Well, once again, Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, it was good to have you. I don't know. Uh, I guess Alien 3 will be the next time I talk to you or if Zach makes us, uh, Ludovico techniques us and makes us watch L sometime soon. <laughs> well, you know, one can only hope that you eventually witness the glory of Alien 3 and come around to my way of thinking. And we all know which cut you have to watch, Rob? Uh, the one that's on my hard drive. <laughs> Oh, man, no, you, you got to figure that out, man, because a lot of internet dummies might think that the extended cut is the way to go, but they're wrong. So you're going to go theatrical as hard as you can. Okay, I don't Rob, know which you, one I have. And the only way you're going to know which one is Rob initially is by what comes out of the, what alien the face hugger impregnates. That's the only way you're going to know, basically. What animal, but yes. Whatever. <laughs> It's not at the end of the day. It's not a real movie, so it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be discussed in such a way. So, this is outrageous. Uh, if we had more time, I would derail this further. But I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna wait for the time and the place. He will abstain. He will abstain for now. I'm not sure if 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 I'